Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas going to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, every Thing School HQ down there in Tequila, Georgia. Fellow University of North Georgia alumni, Matt Green, is here. Matt, good evening, sir. How are you? Good evening, sir. How are how are you doing uh, this this lovely evening? Many are saying eight and four feels like twelve and zero to a lot of schools. Many many <laughs> programs around college football would kill for eight and four in a down year, as Ramel Keaton talked about. It's like, hey, going eight and four is nice, but. We have national championship expectations here in Knoxville, Tennessee. So we look, we move forward, and uh, we conclude what was a very, very strange, frustrating, but still relatively positive uh, year three in the Josh Heupel tenure in uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. As we wait where uh, the balls wind up in bowl season, looks like the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville. Maybe I go. I don't know. I family down there. I might make the trip down. Who knows? Um, but yeah, you know, it's over. And honestly. It went out great. Joe Milton, six TDs. It was fun. Had a little scuffle in great, the second quarter. Great, uh, great little reaction, overreaction, right? What? It was good. It was fine. Who, Joe? I'm just saying. I mean, that was be- Joe's best game of his. On a positive note, but great. Uh... He was great. Like, I'm as someone who's been very um, tough on Joe over the course of the year. I would say it would qualify as great. And it I there's not been many great performances from Joe Milton as a Tennessee quarterback. There's been great stretches. First half against Alabama, um, as one that really stands out here. But you know, it was a it was a it was a good three and a half quarters of Joe Milton football until he was pulled for Nico Yamaliaba with the game very much out of reach. But you know, there's not really much to say. The Tennessee sports guys and I we we broke down the Vandy game earlier uh today, but 
I mean, hey, season's over. We're done. It's now portal season, tampering season, and we see what uh, the Vols are going to do to surround uh, big Bryce Young, Nico Iamaliava going into 2024, sir. No, I'm sure he played well, right? I mean, it's it was a good performance from, from Joe Milton, but uh, for, does anyone ever play great versus Vanderbilt? It's like, yeah, it's it's Vanderbilt. Like, you... He played well. It's a it's a positive note, but um, yeah. Congrats, eight and, eight and four. It's like we talked about it preseason. It was like it was definitely a possibility. I feel like that's where I felt like Tennessee fans were kind of getting ahead of themselves coming to last year. Like you guys are not in the position of like you know who you're gonna win. You know, like they're not a they're not in a, like a Penn State or something. It's like okay, we just got to beat Michigan and Ohio State, and that's that's what's standing in between our between us and a national championship like it's not just okay georgia and tennessee or georgia and alabama that's that's where our sights are set we're gonna go 10 and 2 we just need to beat one of those teams so i felt like there were some tennessee fans that thought they'd already arrived and it's like no you're not necessarily just beat the best teams on your schedule level yet like you there's still there's still a little weirdness that can happen and missouri was was uh definitely you know not weird but a team that no one was expecting preseason to finish top 10. And and obviously that, that was a team that Tennessee lost to, but yeah, I think we talked about preseason eight and four wasn't out of the realm of possibility. This is a, and that's a, well, that Tennessee's been for the last decade plus, like that's definitely a very good rebuilding year. If you're going to eight and four. So um, I think, I think listen to the podcast a week ago. I, I felt like you you were kind of trying to duck your your preseason Tennessee prediction. Like you were you were predicted this team to go to a playoff, but you were you well, were at on. least throwing out the possibility of a of an eight and four. Well, I said nine and three was never going to happen. I said a lot. The majority of Tennessee fans said that the, if you did a poll of like all the VolQuest message board posters and all the Tennessee annals. Everyone thought nine and three, like a step back, because yeah. you go ten and two with Hendon last year. You're right there at eleven and one before the fallout in uh, Columbia, and I, I just looked at it as like either Joe is a Heisman type guy and looks like a number one pick in the draft, like just a full, like he really just comes up into his own, and the the bombs are there, and he he just he's great and has a Cam Newton type one and done year, you know in Knoxville because I mean he was ranked as the number one what most intriguing or most important uh player coming into the year I forgot who did that where they had him at number one it was like I don't know man I mean he was very uh he was a hot commodity everyone was all in on the 80 yard throws and this that and the other highlighting Manning 80 yards he's throwing 100 yards well no what I'm saying is like everyone was so obsessed with what he could be in this offense and rightfully so based on what you saw with Hinton Hooker but what I was saying I was like it's a boomer bust type deal like there's no middle ground there. He's not a, like a high floor, like steady Eddie Will Rogers type. Um, He's either going to be really, really good or it's going to be a really frustrating year. And it turned out to be, he was really frustrating uh, for the majority of but the you year went on the record. Your prediction. Oh, I said, was, hold on. I said either they would be like eight and four or seven and five or 10 and, or 11 and one. I said that would be one of the two. I, I did not pick nine and three or ten and two. Predictions. We made our preseason predictions. You yeah, and I was like, I'm not going to go against Tennessee and bet on seven and five and eight and four. But I did say that it would be one or the other. Even on the vol pods, I said all offseason, I was like, it's going to be one of the two. Like either Tennessee's awesome and even better than a year ago, and Joe's a high Heisman favorite, or Joe is rough and this year is rough um, across the board. But it was a bridge year, and eight and four in a bridge year, still pretty good. We'll see what happens as they wrap up this recruiting class. A lot more depth coming in next year. 
remember, this is a team that was without a lot of Scollies coming in. You lose 30-plus kids when Hypo comes in. The depth wasn't there. It takes time building a college football roster and building an SEC roster that uh, can compete and withstand a lot of injuries throughout the course of a physical, demanding college football season. And the injuries just really, really piled up down the stretch, but ultimately didn't really phase them in terms of what they had to play for and all that. But I don't know. It's fine. You're three, done, eight and four, and now it's Nico time. I think <laughs> it's going to be very, very interesting. And if you're a Tennessee fan, the best thing you feel right now is you look at Florida's schedule, you look at some of these other SEC schedules going into next year, Matt Green. Tennessee will sleepwalk into nine and three next year with how easy the schedule is. If Nico is even three fourths of what he's yeah, supposed hey, to be, be careful with that talk, sir. They it's were an, some, it's some the second were easiest schedule and similar. I mean, Arkansas and Tennessee have the two easiest schedules, I think, uh, in the SEC in 2024. And it's uh, and also getting Vanderbilt locked in as your one permanent rival is just it's a it's a godsend based on how deep this conference is uh, going to be starting next year, year over year. Yeah, good for Arkansas. They've uh, they've deserved they deserve an easy SEC schedule. And uh, same Tennessee, obviously, been playing Alabama and georgia every year for but that's not changing uh in in 2024 at least but uh i don't know we'll see there i have a i have a feeling there's still there's still gonna be some difficult games on that schedule oh for and sure we're talking about a, we're at talking oklahoma about the hypo return hypo's first time back at oklahoma also tennessee i think had the most seniors of any team on on the defensive side of the ball in the sec this year mm-hmm. so it's uh there's a lot being put on nico's plate we'll, we'll see if uh you know, if if it is a bounce back year or if it is another eight and four type of year, we shall see. We have all offseason to talk about uh, what Tennessee will be uh, in 2024, Matt Green. But uh, we need to talk about what actually happened. So um, before we get into uh, a lot of stuff and some coaching carousel stuff that we won't go too deep on just because I want it to settle by and large. because We'll do, we'll do it when the offseason hits and when uh, we have some breaks in the action to do like best hires, favorite hires, that sort of thing. Um, cause it's very, it's a, a lot of moving parts right now, uh, in that regard. So I don't want it to be kind of outdated right out of the gate here. So, um, Matt Green, how do we do on rivalry weekend? And before you answer, let the record show, I would like, uh, the rules to be where if I ended up falling behind because of the expansion oh, in the man, pick this week, this? then it's tossed out and it's like a, Hey, congratulations a little bit for you. But if I won either way then we can keep it and count it towards the the final pick them. So it really comes down to how it, uh, if, how I did, whether or not the rules and your expansion of the pick them this week stand. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, absolutely not. Not, not fair at all. This is a uh, garbage rules you're trying to throw in here at the end, but um, mm-hmm. I didn't actually tally the, um, the additional game so i think mm. looking at the against the spread i think you may have no i, I added it all up i didn't i didn't break it down oh. versus like our original 10 versus those ones we added in mm. but i think the 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 extra ones I, I think you had a lot of success with those so that may have actually improved your record uh, against the spread but um overall this past week we were killing it on rivalry week um overall that is not necessarily against the spread i went 15 and 4 in our 19 games uh overall you went 14 and 5 so i picked up a game there but you're still sitting at 103 and 48 to my 151 so three games uh three game lead overall and then uh against the spread this weekend i went 9 and 10 and you went 10 and 9 sir so mm. 
you you throwing out all these little uh all these little things before the preface prefacing the uh the pick'em that you should just you should just be been quiet because you had a good week. You uh once again, you know, really solidified, mm. you know, your lead against against the spread. So you're 86, 61, and four on the season to my mm. 79, 68, and four. So yeah, what is that? A seven game lead on me. You're uh, hitting 57% against the spread to my 52.3 percent not you know i like to be better than that you know it's still Mm -hmm. still above 500 like we want to be but uh you know that's not good enough i gotta gotta get better in 2024 uh and then zeus uh south carolina home dog of the week really let him down he's 12 and 5 now on the season so uh still still looking real solid on the year what is that a uh 70.6 percent on the season zeus with his home dog of the week so you know, it was his birthday this week, so we'll we'll cut him some slack. You know, he may have uh he may have gotten a little lazy this week. Well, hey, he gets a bounce back week. It was Turkey Week. He had a lot on his plate. Speaking of, what was the the Thanksgiving meals for the pups? Did y'all do something special? How did it work out? Does Tori do something special for Thanksgiving? Does she mix and match some of the leftovers for Zeus and Maddox? How does that work? We didn't have a lot of the leftovers. Like we went to mm. other people's things, so we just kind of, you know, we we just did our thing. But I, I'm I'm sure she threw in like some pumpkins, some little like Thanksgiving little theme, you know. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that she, I don't think she went too crazy for Thanksgiving. How Not was with the day thing? before being the birthday, you know, that was kind of a the treat day. Okay, that's fair. Um, how was the Thanksgiving? What is what's your go to? I feel like you're are you a picky eater? I feel like you are, right? Um, I'm not too, I'm not too picky. I feel like Thanksgiving, like, uh, ham, turkey, like they, someone, they even had some like pulled pork and mm. mashed potatoes, a little, uh, what is it? Broccoli rice casserole, a little mac and cheese. I, I had, a uh, a lot of sides on my plate. So I was, uh, I was eating good. Do you use stuffing? I... To be honest, I don't know where the stuffing was in this particular <laughs> setup, so I did not eat stuffing in this in the in 2023. But I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't like avoid it or anything. I'm not a huge casserole guy, like mm. just in general. But um, there's some of the ones that that people do that I'll like. Yeah, I'm not a casserole guy either. I mean, I definitely didn't do broccoli and rice. I'm a pretty picky i mean i my green beans and stuff like that i like it individual i just don't like to mix and match all these different things where like uh marshmallows and sweet potatoes and uh broccoli yeah. and rice casserole no let's just keep everything separate let's just give them one item at a time and let me uh let me mix and match if that's what i want to do just separate them i i want them individual and i don't know if that's a an ocd thing on my part but i don't know that I, I never like how that. i would think how i would think of you for sure but i'm not i'm not totally not that way either i feel like i'm I'm, i am more i'm picking up what you're putting down there you go uh matt greenwell as always love to hear positive news uh on the winning front from me uh with another college football uh weekend in the books conference championship weekend uh right here and i'm excited i was i was talking with the the thomas family group chat over the weekend and i felt so weird with the florida state stuff because i shout out to cousin sam and all my fam who went to FSU and a lot of FSU fans. I felt so weird because like the Tennessee game ends and the Iron Bowl is crazy, which was awesome. We'll get into. And then I'm I'm watching that. And I'm, I think my eyes were still more towards uh, Georgia and Georgia Tech. And I that was one I was pretty confident in tech covering as we talked about in the pod. And Haynes being a little bit frisky 
uh, in that game, and he was good. But uh, Buster Faulkner also cooking up uh, a clinic. One of the better OCs uh, this year. Great OC hired by Brent Key uh, and Buster Faulkner. But um, I was uh, I was looking at him just like, I don't want you guys to put your put Florida State in the playoff. I, I don't want it to happen. I, it sucks because of the Jordan Travis thing. And it just Tate's not it. And Tate was was quite bad in that first half. And Florida should have been up multiple scores. And that's really the reason they lost is going 12-7 at the half based on how they played in the first half was was just a, a, a nightmare situation for Florida uh, at home using the crowd and defense playing really well and, and that all first that. But... drive was the, the spitting thing, right? Wasn't that yeah. led to the only touchdown drive mm. in the first half? Yeah. So I just, you look at it and I'm like, what a waste. But I'm, I just, I came away feeling pretty bad about uh, Florida State, especially when you see Texas take care of business in a major way. And I don't know. We'll talk about why Texas and Florida State might be linked um, after next weekend because I think there's a strong possibility it gets dicey between those two schools, uh, depending on how conference championship weekend unfolds. But ultimately, Matt Green, I want to start with uh, your Georgia Bulldogs. They survived Georgia Tech, um, went by a little over a touchdown. What was it? Uh, eight point win for the dogs. Yeah. Uh, Tech scores 10 points in the fourth quarter uh, to cover on a major way. But, you know, I, I'm curious, from your vantage point, what did you see in this game on Saturday night? What did the Jackets do really well that frustrated uh, Georgia, especially on defense with uh, Haynes King and company? Uh, where did Georgia struggle? What What did you see from Georgia Tech uh, on Saturday night in Atlanta? Well, I think it, there's there's one thing they did well is they ran the ball and they had over 200 yards rushing in this game. And that's, uh, you know, the third time in the last four games that an opponent has had over 150 yards rushing against Georgia. So you're seeing Georgia still able to win some of these games when they're giving up yards on the ground. But that's just that's something you're just you're not used to seeing, uh, especially against with a team like Georgia Tech. But, you know, they gave Georgia a, a tough game. Uh, a year ago, I want to say, was it tied at halftime? I should have looked that up uh, before. But mm. I um I also feel like the scoreboard kind of it, this game wasn't as close as the scoreboard looked. Like it kind of felt like the Vanderbilt game that you know you were just kind of cruising, uh, and then Beck throws that uh, almost pick six in the Vanderbilt game, and then it's like okay, now things got interesting. It was like an eight point game, I think, at one point. But this was like like Georgia went up 31 to 13 uh, late in the third quarter. And Tech had 35% of their offense for the entire game in those final two drives after going down 31-13. Like that still happened, obviously. Like they made it an eight-point game with like five minutes to go. Like, you know, it, it, it did still happen. But it also, it just never felt like this game was in doubt. Like even the even the turnovers in this one, like it would have been, I, I want to say 30, 38, uh, 16 or something. Um, when, at Dylan Bell, when they overturned that touchdown in the fourth quarter, and then they drive down and a deflection turns into an interception in the end zone. And that, and that was probably one of the few kind of like bad decision interceptions Carson Beck has uh, made this year. But like they fumbled on the first offensive play of the game and kind of gave Tech a, a short field. Um, so it was kind of some things that they kind of beat themselves a little bit. But yeah, it, I would say I'm not going to try to like, you know, sugarcoat and kind of undersell like how well they were able to run the ball, because I think that is a concern with what Georgia did against, uh, 
uh, Ole Miss a few weeks ago, and now what they've done against Tech and Missouri. So we've seen multiple teams, and and what obviously what they're going to face uh, from Jalen Milrow and Alabama in the SEC championship. So that's that's the one I think kind of serious thing you can take away from like you could actually be concerned watching that Georgia Tech game, but I, I felt like it was more an easy win than than the score really indicated. It looked like the officiating was pretty bad, and Georgia fans were pretty upset with how this game was officiated. What was some of the stuff that you saw that uh, annoyed you, and you were you thought was pretty pretty bad uh, against Georgia? Oh man, I did see a, a lot of social media talk about the refs. I don't really remember. I mean, I know there was like a face mask at some point that was missed, but so you didn't feel like, while watching the game that it was a it was a really poorly officiated game. I mean, not necessarily like there was one like on the sideline, like because like that was the other thing, too. Like, like Georgia did get like Georgia Tech did get stops, but it felt like every stop was kind of Georgia stopped themselves. Like there was a third and 11 where kind of similar to the Tennessee game a week ago where uh, Carson Beck hits Dylan Bell on the sideline and it's like he caught it, but he regripped it on the sideline. I didn't think he actually bobbled it, but he just kind of regripped it, and, and they uh, overturned that and said it wasn't a catch. Uh, that kind of ended a drive. But man, I'm blanking off the top of my head. I feel like there was another one kind of in the end zone, but I oh, I can't remember the scenario. But yeah, I don't I don't know. I didn't like particularly notice anything like egregious from the referees. I could be wrong. So if you had to to put a bow on it and like the teams that have been able to run on Georgia uh, three of the last four times, I can't recall who's the one who couldn't run on Georgia uh, among those four, <laughs> uh, Matt Green. But it, they ran well on the first play of the game. Uh, I'll have to go back and look at the tape. I'm not sure who you're referring to, but I, I, it's 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 ringing a bell kind of. But I, I'm just not certain of which one for, for sure was not able to run on Georgia. If you had to explain why teams are not able to run on Georgia from what you're seeing seeing is it personnel is it just uh good backs is it attrition is it young guys at the, on the defensive line in the linebacker room what would you attest most to why Georgia is bleeding a little bit there uh on on defense um it's hard to say I would say all, most almost all of the good runs are coming to the outside so it's like kind of mm -hmm. a, a setting the edge situation that's what you saw against Auburn early in the season like you you just kind of seen at times and Kirby has said uh himself like, like that's by design like you'd rather be giving up runs to the outside than right up the middle just getting gashed that's pretty much unstoppable so obviously you're trying to force stuff to the outside and Georgia thinks they have the athletes to to go sideline to sideline and tackle as well as just about anybody but um, you know, this game, it was kind of a, a three headed monster situation. Like not one guy really, really just went off on this Georgia, uh, defense. I mean, they also 44 carries for 205 yards. It's like per yards per carry. That's not like incredible. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it is a lot of success on the ground, but I kind of feel like the, the old miss game was kind of similar. It's like, this was this was four point seven yards per carry, so that that was probably better than Ole Miss. I think Ole Miss was under four yards a carry, but they still just had a, a a good offensive production running the ball. But yeah, it was a little bit of the running backs, a little bit of Haynes King. I think Haynes King is the is probably the reason you know they were able to do a lot of the things they did. He's just you know kind of a, a dual threat quarterback that was able to make some plays with his legs, you know, make a couple good throws, keep some plays alive. Like I think. 
I think that's the biggest takeaway I would I would say because obviously everyone's going to compare everything George is doing to what Jalen Milrow will do against Georgia, but um, I, I don't necessarily. I don't think the game plan for Jalen Milrow is going to be the same as, as it is for, for a Haynes King. Okay. I like it. Uh, Matt green fourth and forever. We're going to start with Georgia and Bama because now they're on a collision course in the sec title game. And I think it's also best for everybody involved where it's like, I'm glad that game means something. Cause I would have uh, like, look, the Auburn Tigers should have beaten Alabama on Saturday night in the plains. That should have happened. The punt drop, the muff punt was terrible. And then obviously fourth and forever and rushing two that we'll get into in a second here. Auburn should have won this football game and they did not. It's over. It's tough. Like, I don't know how you, it's going to be a tough off season for the Auburn Tigers and just feeling like you really let one get away. And Auburn or in Alabama just has been finding a way. And I have a stat from Connor Garrett, friend of the pod of Saturday down South that I'll get to in a second that I thought was awesome in his column uh, recapping this. But I mean, the fourth and forever touchdown to Isaiah Bond was unbelievable. Like I lost it in my living room seeing this happen uh, in real time, especially the play right before it. It's like Jalen, like a bad snap puts him at fourth and forever to begin with. And you're like, oh, wow, this this is how it ends. Uh, the playoff hopes and everything else. And the house well, of horrors continue. For sorry Alabama. to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but that and that third and goal where he's just chilling like yeah. two yards in front of the line of scrimmage looking <laughs> for someone to be open like. He probably could have picked up 10 15 on, on third down to to make it a fourth and goal from like the 12 or something. No, you're right. I mean, it wasn't even close, the, the him being over the line and getting the penalty there. And that, I mean, all of it was just craziness. And also, if he doesn't do that and he just runs, do they still win? Do they try and run the football on fourth and goal? I mean, that's another part no. of it. It's like, you look at it and it's like it happened that way and you're like wow it actually ended up working out for Alabama that they did get pushed back that far and that they did find uh, Isaiah Bond in the left corner of the end zone here but I mean Matt your immediate reaction to Alabama coming from behind stealing one in Auburn late uh, a game they had no business winning uh, what did you make of it? My immediate reaction was was literally this is the best rivalry in college football. Like Ooh. the Iron Bowl just never misses, man. It's <laughs> it's now there's four straight uh games at Jordan Hare that have either been Auburn wins or Alabama wins by one score. Like this is uh it was just, this was probably the play of the season. Like mm. cuz I think that was really the the tone of the whole weekend was the, this was our closest chaos weekend we had all season, and we didn't even want it this weekend because we, we wanted all these like quarterfinal matchups in conference championship weekend. So it was like, I don't know, one, part of me wants to see Auburn shock the world, but it's like part of me wants the Alabama-Georgia game to be a legit quarterfinal game to get to the playoffs. So I uh, I haven't seen like newspaper headlines or anything. Do we have a name for this for this game yet? I've, I've, you, I've heard you say fourth and forever. How, I'm going one in a mill row. How about that? One in a mill row, man. Fourth and 31. I saw a stat on the SEC Network. The last three seasons, teams with third or fourth and 30-plus were 0 for 90 on picking those up. So not even goal or anything, just third and 30-plus, fourth and 30-plus. And now they're one for 91 because somehow Milrow is able to pick out Isaiah Bond. It was obviously an insane play. May have gotten away with a little push off in the corner. 
but I don't know how you don't have two guys on every receiver in the end zone. They have to pick up 30 yards. Like the fact that there's a one-on-one matchup, it's like, I don't, I don't know how that happens when, when they need 30 yards uh, on one play. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to think about Milrow. Like it's just someone I, I think tweeted. It was like Bama's running the Michael Vick, 2004 Atlanta Falcons offense. Jalen Miller wrote it really is where it's just like running around and waiting for something to open up and hoping something opens up and saying a prayer and it works and so it, when it looks bad it looks really bad but when it looks good you're like man there's a never say die part to this team that's just it's it's really weird to watch um Alabama play like this on offense but I mean I don't know what to make of them because I mean here's that Connor O'Gara stat Matt Green and I'm curious what you think about this I mean he has this in his column in Saturday on top that I highly encourage you to go read. Quote, since the start of the, that 2021 season, Alabama was in a one-score game in the fourth quarter 18 times in 24 SEC games, including six of eight this season. In those 24 SEC contests over the last three years, Saban's squad is 21-3, including an 8-0 mark this year. At some point, it's not just luck. At some point, Alabama and Nick Saban is just an unreal closer and an unreal coach when games are tight, when games are close. I mean, it, it's one of those, oh, that's like why he's the GOAT stat. And I understand Kirby's at the top of the sport, but I mean, that's bonkers. Like Saban pulling those that many wins uh, when they're that close, just it's unbelievable. Like, I mean, I, mean, I don't know. Is. What do you make of that? That is a great stat. I mean, we know Nick Saban is like the greatest college football coach of all time. So it's not surprising, but I'll be honest. That kind of feeds into my thinking of the whole dynasty being dead thing because mm. this is not how Alabama used to play. They didn't have to escape 75% of their SEC games by one score. You know, it's like they used to just murder you until you just questioned your life decisions in the third and fourth quarter. Like they were mm. just, they were a different level. And now it seems like every good team they play, it's, it's a slugfest. And this is not mm-hmm. even a good Auburn team. This is now the second straight time you've gone to Jordan-Hare versus a six-win Auburn team and had to pull one out of your ass, honestly. Mm-hmm. like I mean, last time they had the Heisman Trophy-winning quarterback, and they had to go 98 yards in the final, what, minute and a half to just to send it to overtime. So now you're taking a, a six-and-five, now six-and-six uh, Auburn team, like – that just got blasted by New Mexico State the week before. And this team was just gashing you left and right. Like the way they were able to run the ball on Alabama was was honestly insane. So I um it was kind of similar to how the Georgia, like this game was obviously way more in the balance than the Georgia Auburn game was, but somehow without any real contribution from the quarterback, like Auburn was able to be in this game in the fourth quarter. And and they sh- obviously they should have won this game. Like with the muffed punt and the the fourth and thirty one or fourth and goal from the thirty one, like it's it's definitely one that just got away. Like I honestly, it's one of those. I don't know if it's better to win. Obviously, it's always better to win, and it's the in state bragging rights. But like you beat Alabama, then it's like why the hell did we go? They beat in seven. They be seven and five at that point. Why the hell did we go seven and five if we're good enough to beat Bama? How do how do we just get blasted, get boat raced by New Mexico State? if we're able to beat Bama and I think it goes into kind of my feeling of they were probably preparing for Alabama for two weeks. 
um, and overlooking New Mexico State. But mm. why are we not able to overlook New Mexico State and still get a win by by three, four touchdowns? So I um, it's it's kind of a catch twenty two. But I think the biggest thing, kind of um, relaying relaying this, how it's going to apply to Georgia is you you saw how Auburn was attacking Jalen Milrow in this game. Like, just mm. forcing him to be in the pocket and just making him win from the pocket. But it's like they could do it for five, six seconds at a time, and then they're like, ah, I, I want to sack him. And then they like they would just lose containment, and then he'd, he'd run and he'd take off. So it's I think you're going to see Georgia do the same thing and just keep him in the pocket the way they kind of did with Joe Milton. But I think you're going to see Georgia play a much more disciplined and defensively and uh, unlike this Auburn team. So I think that's, that's my biggest takeaway is like, you saw what Auburn was trying to do and you were like, ah, they let him out again. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know how, and part of that, obviously you got to credit Jalen Milrow. He's just an insane athlete, but I, I, that's the biggest thing that I question um, if they're going to recreate, be able to recreate in the SEC championship. I do love that take though, that it's like, yeah, it's cool. Uh, like to your point, like, <sighs> Saban deserves a lot of credit for being able to continually win football games this way. But to your point that I think is, is a really good one is that like it, it's a bad sign that he's in this many close games in the sec that everyone's caught up to him, that he's in one score games over and over and over again. And he's in a dog fight with uh, bad Auburn teams and back-to-back trips to Jordan Hare. Like this is not good that you're in this situation. You shouldn't be down 20 to 7 at the half to an inferior Tennessee team this year. Um you shouldn't be in these positions where you have to be excellent down the stretch to survive. And I mean those that's a huge difference between like being Clemson right now and being Nick Saban at Alabama. Like they were suffering the same thing where they're not doing it. They're not dominating the conference like they've been at the pinnacle of the dynasty and um yeah, no, I don't I don't hate that take. I think it's a good one. Um, with all that being said, how are you feeling about Georgia, Alabama with a college football playoff on the line? But also, are we sure that the loser is officially eliminated, Matt Green? Because what happens if Alabama beats Georgia? Because I know the gut instinct is like, and this is going to be marketed as whoever lose, whoever loses is going to be eliminated from the playoff contention and this, that, and the other. I'm not sure about that based on what happened this weekend. And you're already seeing some of the committee They're, I think they're looking for a reason not to put Florida state in the final four. Macri and I ask you, depending on how things shake out, what happens if Alabama beats Georgia? And do you think the dogs still have a pretty good path to make it into the college football playoff to defend their, their championship if they were to get upset next weekend in Atlanta? No, I think all of that had to, that chaos had to start this weekend uh, for mm. the any sort of loser getting in the college football playoff. Like I think, and we almost saw it. You know, we almost had Florida State lose. We almost had Washington lose. Like we, it was going to take something like that, like a Washington losing to Washington State and then beating Oregon, and then maybe the Pac-12 is is left out uh, in general. Maybe Texas jumps them or something like that. But no, I think with with all this left, like I do think a one loss Georgia would be ahead of a one loss Ohio State if it's coming down to that next week. But no, I don't really see a path. Like mm. the I was not beating Michigan, right? We can just go ahead mm. and end that right there. Like I was not beating Michigan. Michigan's in the playoff. The mm. Pac-12 champion is a hundred percent in. It doesn't matter who wins. Like the Pac-12 champion is in. And then well, hold Florida on. State. 
are we sure Oregon, if they win, they're in no matter what? I think so. I think Oregon's okay. kind of, especially with this kind of crazy weekend we just had, I think Oregon was already thought to be the best one loss uh, team in the country. I think that was, which I don't know, agree with, but yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's if it's head and shoulders that they're better than Texas and and Alabama, but I think they definitely definitely made a point over Alabama this weekend. And you know, mm-hmm. Texas, they they obviously. Uh, but honestly, Texas if they were playing on a neutral field in Atlanta this weekend, who would you take, Alabama or Oregon? Be honest. I think I would take Oregon. Honestly, really, I think I I just I think this is a flawed Alabama team. Like we we saw what Auburn was doing to them this week, like rushing for. 250 yards on the ground like Bo Nix is a hell of a lot better than what's his name I'm blanking on right now Peyton Thorne Mm. so yeah I mean I think I would definitely take Oregon on a neutral site um over Alabama and I I just I don't see any world where Florida State does not does not get in the playoff I think Florida State was actually I think there's a very real world for them See, I think Florida State was the biggest winner of the weekend, to be honest, mm. with Georgia beating Georgia Tech by a touchdown, with Washington needing a last-second field goal to beat Washington State, Alabama needing an absolute miracle to beat Auburn. I think Florida State's like, yeah, we're here with our backup quarterback. We just won in the swamp. Like, say what you want. We won by two scores. It didn't feel like a two-score win, but it was a two-score mm. win in the end. It's like Florida State, do I think they're one of the best four teams right now? No, but... I don't. I don't think. I think the committee is overstepping if they're going to say, "Oh, well, you're not as good with this guy in," and and just and just ignore the first eleven games of the season. Like if they're thirteen and zero, you just don't leave them out of the college football playoff. But what if? Here's my scenario, and this is where I do think they get left out. It's one particular scenario, and Texas okay. needs help. Like Texas, I think it needs some serious help, and it. They're kind of screwed. It's like you have this best win. I think they still have one of the best wins on the calendar, <laughs> winning at Alabama uh, this year, and their one loss being uh, to the rival, who's a top ten team uh, this year. I mean, Texas has had the stars align. It's just an unbelievable record at the top, which just kind of is going to keep them out. Where you have to be damn near perfect to make it into this playoff. But I ask you, Matt Green, let's say, um, this is my chaos theory: if Georgia beats uh, Bama. And then, uh, or no, Bama beats Georgia, excuse me. Florida State wins. Oregon wins. And Michigan wins. Are you sure that the committee will not put one loss Georgia, if it's a close and Alabama wins on a game-winning field goal, does not put Georgia in that four spot over Florida State? Because that would mean they would have to drop Georgia four spots from losing to Alabama in that spot or do they do something hilarious and keep Alabama out and put Texas in or something because Texas has the if they win in this scenario too like do you take the one loss champ from the Big 12 who beat Alabama or do you take the one loss SEC champ who just beat Georgia the two-time defending national champions like that's an unbelievable situation for the committee to find themselves in yeah I mean I guess I think I it's it's tough just because it's the SEC champion, but I don't think do they have a better I, case in Texas if both win? I don't think so. I think in that yeah. scenario, that's how Texas gets into the playoff. Like I think, I think we all want Florida State to lose because we all. Don't I have some family that don't, the, but yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> neutrally, we all mm. want Texas, Florida State to lose because I, I honestly, I think the best playoff right now, like just watching this 2023 season, the best playoff we can get, in my opinion, is Georgia, Michigan, Oregon, and Texas. I, I agree. Think that would be the most fun, like four teams that all feel like they could win it all. Mm. Florida State doesn't feel like one of those teams, but you know, who who are we to decide? Like, you know, they just that is what the committee's job is to decide. But I think all of the chaos really stems from Georgia or from Alabama beating Georgia. It kind of seems mm. like the the first step in, in in everyone's chaos theory. Um, so if that doesn't happen, I think everything will be a lot cleaner, to be honest, because I think Texas will have an, a, de- a legitimate argument that right now they're better than Florida State. But I just think, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's the committee's job, but I think that's the committee kind of overstepping a little bit. That's fair. I'm very curious because I think a lot of people who have Florida State winning out as a lock to make it in. I don't necessarily agree with that, depending on how the other teams look. The one lost champs look. I, I, I would just, definitely. I wouldn't put it. I would in. definitely put them in the lock category. But here's the problem: it's the worst conference. It's not even particularly close. Like the ACC has been the worst Power Five conference this year, and it's not close. And you can't tell me that Florida State has a better win than Texas, as the even one like their one loss is Oklahoma. Florida State. I mean, the Bama win is significantly better than that LSU win. The LSU finishes nine and three, but Florida State. I mean, UNC finishes eight and four. You look up and down the ACC. Miami was not good. I mean. Look, it's not their fault. They played to what they can, but like you barely survived in the swamp against a terrible Florida team that uh, went five and seven or won less than six games for the first time back to back in like what, 70 years or something? Like, what are we doing here? Like, Florida State's, we look, they did what they were supposed to do. They won every game on their calendar, but I do think the committee has to weigh how bad the ACC is compared to the rest of the conferences because I think it's the Big 12 was good this year at the top. Um, Oklahoma State had a great run. We'll see what they do against Texas and the top. But, I mean, they look like a top 15 team. Oklahoma looks like a top 15 team. Kansas State's been right around there all year. Texas is obviously a top five team. I mean, that's great. The top of the Pac-12 has been great. The top of the Big Ten has been great. And the SEC has actually been really down um, as a whole this year. So, I don't know. I I don't know what you do. This is why I don't want to be in the committee because I don't know how you break this down. Florida State's opponent in the ACC championship will be ranked higher than Texas's opponent. So, I mean, there is that. Like, Louisville, I think no one's really impressed after losing to Kentucky, who's probably, yeah. what, the 8th, ninth best team in the, SC- in the SEC this year, beating the second-best team in the ACC. That's definitely a bad look. But, like, is Florida State going to the Swamp with their backup quarterback worse than what Alabama did in the Iron Bowl? Like, that, w- that was the- a similarly bad auburn team compared to florida to florida like they have one more win they're going to a bowl game but i mean i i think that's the biggest thing that like yeah florida state might not look good but it's going to be very tough for for anyone to jump them in my opinion like like if if they beat louisville in the ac in the in the ac championship like you're just going to jump in and be like no texas beating oklahoma state is more impressive like there's there's nothing more impressive about that like their and their resume is going to take a hit potentially if Alabama, their best win is no longer number seven, if Georgia wins and Alabama's number 12 at that point or something like that. So I don't know. I, I think uh, it's not a great situation to be in, but I, yeah, I'm in the, I'm in that camp of Florida state wins and they're in. All right. We'll see how it goes, but I think it's going to be interesting to monitor no matter what here, Matt green, uh, Michigan, they beat Ohio state again. Um, 
Dan Mullen had a good tweet about this, uh, who also, I, I love Dan Mullen. I really do. He's great. And he like just casually drops in a reply because some Syracuse fan posted a gif of a Syracuse Orangeman football player celebrating uh, under Dan Mullen's comment about Ryan Day and Ohio State. And he just comments below casually like, oh, love Q's great program. Not going to be the head coach there. <laughs> it's just he just breaks the news himself and just replying to some rando on Twitter. I, I just love that. The, he, Dan Mullen's just like scrolling his phone. I imagine just like watching uh TV show on his couch. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. But um, he was talking about he's like Jim Harbaugh was 0-5 against Ohio State at one point. And you look at where that rivalry's changed changed uh, now with uh, Michigan winning three straight. It's like Ryan Day. I think he coached a pretty good game. Uh, I, I thought this was a competitive back and forth account, uh, a contest. And look, the better team won, but I think that's okay. Like Ohio state never felt like a top four team this year. Like we talked about it on this podcast week every week. They just never felt like they had the juice that they've had in years past. And a lot of that is Kyle McCord's just not a great quarterback. Um, he's not the CJ Strouds that they've had in, in years past the Justin Fields types. He's just not like, he's not, I don't think he has that upside. I don't think he has top five in the draft upside. Um, so I don't know what they do going I'll, into this offseason. I won't stand. I won't stand for Ohio state's message board slander, calling him Kyle Accord. The Honda Accord <laughs> is just a reliable vehicle, sir. That's True. about as uh, low key and reliable as it gets. It might not be Maserati Marv, but uh, I won't stand for any Honda Accord slander. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what I, what car comparison uh, I would actually compare. I get to, it, but though. it's a good, it's a good, it's a good pun on his name. I'll, I, I'll give you that. But Accords, yeah, there. I had one for a long time uh, after I totaled a Lexus in high school. It, it, yeah, it got that was like our a first billion. Car. Yeah, like it got me a billion miles. Like that thing just kept going. Those things are tanks. Uh, they're they're consistent. Uh, also cheat to fix. There you go. Free plug, Honda. Um, Missed field goals, though. Plague the Buckeyes. Um, you can maybe nitpick about Ryan Day not being overly aggressive, but it was also like they were in this game late. They couldn't get off the field. The defense couldn't get off the field. Um, but Michigan, they sweep Penn State and Ohio State without Harbaugh. And, I mean, they deserve credit, man. Michigan does it again. They pull it off um, without their head coach, and they put put apart the noise, and they take care of business. What was your, your strongest takeaway about Michigan uh, – finishing undefeated once again i would say my strongest take was i did not feel like i was watching the second and third best teams in college football Mm. play in this game like it was a it was a really competitive game but like i definitely felt you know watching like second quarter like it just things it seems like michigan's getting things easier than ohio state is like it just felt like michigan was the better team to your point on ryan day if there's any criticism um obviously you missed that field goal right before the half and it looks a lot worse but i mean what did you have like 40 30 40 seconds left at that point where that fourth and one came up like they were moving the ball down the down the field on them i i felt like that was a point where ohio state needed to stay aggressive and they could have potentially gotten a seven before the half and so just just playing it out running the clock down and just kicking the field goal like was it just over 50 yards and i i think it was I don't think this uh, kicker has hit a 50-yarder uh, yet this year, um, similar to their last kicker who never hit a 50-yarder in his career. Um, I just I felt like that's probably the biggest criticism I would give of, of Ryan Day. But, yeah, f- for the most part, Michigan just looked like the better team. I think these are two average quarterbacks. Like, and I, You're just not used to seeing Ohio State, like you said, with this level of quarterback play. It just feels like like that that meme that everyone shows with whatever sports car sitting in the 
in the mm. trailer park, uh, carport or whatever. Like that's how Marvin Harrison felt. And, and honestly, all of these receivers, it's like this, this should be the best. I mean, I think it might still statistically be the best offense in the, in the big 10, but there just weren't any good offenses in the big 10. It's like this, this, this could have, there's no reason that couldn't have been a great offense in college football this year. Like it is every year other than Kyle McCord. So he was definitely the guy that held this offense back this year. JJ McCarthy, he still saw Michigan just run the ball a bunch and, and these were two really good defenses. Like, I'm not going to take anything away from that. But neither team was able to just, you know, assert their will on the ground or anything. But J.J. McCarthy was was fine. He was efficient. I still question his ability to, to beat any of these teams uh, that they might go up against in the playoff. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's probably my biggest take is I just – it's interesting how we do hype up Ohio State-Michigan so much every year. And since the very first year of the playoff, this this these two teams have one combined playoff win. So Michigan's 0-2 in the playoff. Ohio State is since their original national championship run in 2014, I think they're like one in five in the in the playoffs. So it, it we're not necessarily watching the best teams in the country play every year in 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 the game. And, and that's and this year probably that, that looks like it more than ever to me. I don't know what to do with Michigan, though, in terms of like, I always thought they were better than Ohio State, and I would have been surprised if Ohio State won this football game on Saturday, but I just don't know if they're like, do they feel better right now than they did at this time a year ago? That's exactly what me. I was saying on Saturday. Yeah, it's it's like hard. It's hard to think like when we're because as a Georgia fan, I think you're just looking at all these teams like, oh, can mm -hmm. they beat us? Can they? And it's hard to see Michigan much better than the 2021 team or the 2022 yeah. team. It's kind of like, they seem like they're the same. JJ McCarthy has better stats than last year, but his stats are pretty good last year. It's like, mm. he's just fine. Like this running game is obviously really good, but I don't think it's like uh Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle or something like we were kind of expecting this to be like mm. the best, clearly best run game in the country. It's not really that this year. So I, I'm I'm with you. I, I don't know exactly what to make of Michigan. They do feel like, you know, they're that blue collar team that plan. They might just be able to get that that grimy defense to just shut you down and you're not going to be able to score more than, you know, 20, 24 points against them. And and that that might be good enough to win the national championship this year. But compared to those other teams that we're seeing that are potentially going to be in the playoff, I, I just don't know if this offense uh stacks up. No. I, I agree, but I'm curious to see how it goes. I mean, they have it, it, a lot of theirs is like a draw thing. Like, who do they draw in round one and uh, how things work for round two? Because I think they're a matchup team that I'll base my uh, Michigan playoff first playoff victory thoughts based on how they're going to they're going to do draw wise, because I think they're going to match up way worse with some teams than with others. But we'll see. Um, for sure. What do we what do we make of the Ryan Day stuff like? This is now the third loss in a row to Michigan. Like, do we need to overreact to this? Can he, is it, is it he can't beat Michigan or or what? Like, I, I saw a stat. He's lost seven games now in his tenure as at Ohio State. Three of them were to Michigan, and we know we're assuming this team's going to the college football playoff. Those are three teams that went to the college football playoff. And then the the other four losses, three of those are in the college football playoff. So six right. of his seven losses are two college football playoff teams. That's really good. 
is what that says yeah. to me is like that's unbelievable that he had he basically loses no games that he's supposed to uh that ohio state should ever lose um he recruits extremely well they're a top three recruiting machine year over year um he hires well i think jim Knowles is a really good defensive coordinator hire to clean that up um brian hartline an expert uh recruiter and he slid into that offensive coordinator role just fine um at the receiver spot I mean, Travion Henderson came on late for them. Um, big time recruit coming out of high school, five star kid. Like, that wasn't ultimately, he hasn't been able to stay healthy. But, like, look, man, if you see what happened at AM, this can kind of lead us into the head coaching stuff. Is like, who are you getting? Like, who's better than Ryan Day? Outside of, like, I could, you could maybe sell me on Mike Vrabel or something, like the hometown or the, the former coach, NFL ties. He probably keeps it going, add more toughness. He feels like somebody you could battle better against Michigan, right? Like, he'll probably instill more of that uh, midwestern toughness and defense first mentality at ohio state this that and the other like i could you could sell me on that but i'm also like ryan day almost beat georgia last year like who else almost beat georgia and was in a position to beat georgia and i just i don't know i think he's i think people overreact and i like that damn long tweet of like look harbaugh we were wondering about this when he was demolishing everybody in the big 10 early on in that tenure and then just couldn't beat ohio state and couldn't uh finish the drill down the stretch and then Hey, guess what? Then he started doing it. And it's the same thing with the playoffs. Like, oh, Harbaugh can't win a playoff game. It's like, well, what if he does this year and he just beats Oregon? And then you're like, okay, what's the next thing? You just keep moving the goalposts. But I'm like, trust me, it could be way worse. And you could be in a way worse situation. You get Michigan at home next year and see what happens. But I think a lot of it's just quarterback. You can't miss on these uh, big time quarterbacks. And I think that will be the thing. It's like you can't run it back with Kyle McCord and hope uh, for different results next year. But I mean, I don't know. I think you shouldn't overreact to Ryan Day because I think he's going to win you 10, 11 games, 10 at the absolute worst year over year. Even say, with... He's win 11 games. Yeah. So it's like, hey, he's. I, I think I would just chill on moving on from Ryan Day if I were a Buckeye fan is is my advice. Yeah, I'm with you. 56 and seven now uh, in his six years at Ohio State. Uh, well, I guess no. Some of that includes the, the interim stuff with mm-hmm. Urban Meyer. Um, so 56 and seven overall, it's almost 90%, 89% winning percentage. It's yeah. If you can poach a guy who's like Rabel, he was NFL coach of the year at some point, mm. right? Like with what he's done in Tennessee, I'm sure like if you can poach a guy like that, sure. Like that's an X factor. If he wants to be in college, if he's a good recruiter, who knows? But yeah, if you can get an NFL coach, that's a different story, but I'm with you. Like who wants to take a job? If you know, finishing top five every year, is it good enough? We got to mm-hmm. win a national championship. I agree. Well, let's pivot quickly to some coaching stuff, Matt Green. Uh, I ask you first, now that it's done, more intrigued, Matt Green, Jeff Levy to Mississippi State or Mike Elko to Texas A&M? What, what intrigues you more in the SEC here? Just because I don't have as much to say about it, I'll start with Jeff Levy because that was that just fits perfectly, like what we're talking about. Like Mississippi State's got, not, not that it's a gimmick, but you, they got to have a guy with with a with a shtick, with you know, mm-hmm. with just his thing. That's like we're gonna have this different looking offense that teams are gonna have to prepare for every week. Like we're gonna sneak up on some people if they're overlooking us when they got Alabama next week on their schedule. So yeah, I think uh, I think this is that's exactly what Mississippi State had to do uh, from that perspective. So I, I love that one. Um, and then from Texas A and M's perspective. I'm honestly laughing at Texas A&M fans. If Texas A&M fans had any sort of impact on A&M not hiring Mark Stoops, if the if the backlash, negative backlash was so strong that that actually changed the thought process, 
you guys are clowns right now. Like, who the hell is Mike Elko compared to Mark Stoops? He, he's Mark Stoops just with less experience. Like, he's Mark Stoops like a few steps lower on the rung. Like, he's having success at a basketball school that's never had success in football before. Like, yeah, Mark Stoops does that. Like, this idea that Mark Stoops was not a big-time hire, I think, is like a joke. Like, A&M fan, like, who, do you, who are you, Texas A&M? to think you're better than Mark Stoops. And if you weren't satisfied with the Mark Stoops hire, what does Mike Elko do for you? Like, that's not, that's not Ryan Day. That's not Kalen DeBoer. Like, that's, that's, a, that's a more boring hire than, than Mark Stoops, in my opinion. That's a guy you're also kind of extrapolating, like, what, what is his ceiling with our, with our resources and, and with, with our recruiting footprint and all of that? Like, that's the same way you're extrapolating a guy like Stoops that like, oh, he's winning eight, seven, eight, nine games at Kentucky every year. Yeah, he's winning seven, eight, nine games at Kentucky every year. Like you give him Texas A&M's recruiting budget, that state of Texas to recruit in, like the NIL stuff. We all know about the boosters with A&M and everything. Like I thought Mark Stoops was a, would have been an absolute like home run hire. It felt like it felt similar to what LSU did with Brian Kelly that it's like, we're so good. We don't need to like have some sort of crazy, take some crazy approach to this. Let's go get a guy who's proven to be like the model of consistency, like at Notre Dame, like Brian Kelly. And with a higher ceiling at LSU, he'll just have us very solid every single year. I'm shocked to see that they had like one of the worst defenses in the country this year. So, mm. you know, we'll see if that, that pans out, but I uh, I just I felt like Mark Stoops was such a great hire, and now Mike Elko. It's like everything he does, it's like kind of going to be like it feels like it's an added pressure. If if the fans actually had a a a, a role in in Mark Stoops not getting the job, yeah, it's just kind of funny that it ended up with Mike Elko anyway, where he was the original target, right? Like they did end up with the guy who was first rumored. He's been the long suspected guy he has experience there obviously as the dc for three years and uh was a great dc for jimbo fisher at a m before he moved on to uh to duke and look he's been great at duke duke finished undefeated at home in the acc this year matt green like it's duke like we this was a program in really bad shape before he took over at the end of the Cutcliffe era there and he revitalized it and i mean he has a top 10 quarterback i think uh in this class uh committed so i don't know what happens there for for Duke, but I mean, he turned that program around. It's super bright guy, went to Penn, played football there, all that kind of stuff. Um, he's been successful wherever he's gone as a DC. And like you said, Stoops was not a flashy hire, but it was like one of those where it's like he would have been fine. And you did flashy with Jimbo, you did flashy with these crazy recruiting classes. You just got away from flashy by bringing on Petrino and everything else. And you just need to be solid. And that's what they're ultimately going to be with Mike Elko. I don't know if Mike Elko will be good enough to win a, a national title, but I'm also like, I don't, there's not many people who are like, it's going to be it, your A&M. You've never won a national title. It's not the, that's not your program. You need to be solid because you have these awesome resources. You can sign the number one class in college football one year because you have that. Like, that's a great resource. Hire just a good football coach. Hire someone that you just know is going to put a competent football program, uh, football team on the field each and every Saturday. And that's what you're getting with Stoops. And that's what you're getting with Elko. So it could have been disastrous based on how the Stoops stuff unfolded over the last 12 to 24 hours. But ultimately, 
I mean, they got their guy, and I think Elko is actually a really strong hire. It just was a really weird way and a very A&M SEC way of getting to the guy because obviously reminded a lot of folks of Shiano and Tennessee from many years ago before Pruitt was ultimately hired where the fans revolted. And the fans were like, no, 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 but Elko's okay. Exactly, and the Pruitt thing, the Pruitt thing worked out very poorly for Tennessee. Yep. So it's like, regardless of what fans think, it's like fans want the Braves to sign Josh Donaldson to a five-year contract after mm-hmm. his one good year in Atlanta, and then they don't, and then it turns out that was a really good decision by the Braves to not sign that. It's like these decision makers know what they're doing. So it's like I'm almost, I'm almost alarmed on both ends because like. <laughs> It's like AM fans were pissed about it when they shouldn't have really been. But then it's like if I'm an AM fan and I actually had a say, I actually had like our opinion had a, a sway in what the AM administration did. It's like, well, why are you guys listening to us? Like that's that, that's also kind of a red flag. You guys should know. I thought you guys did your research. Like, even if there was some backlash, you you'd think you no, we got the right guy, whatever. I spent a lot of the time talking about Mark Stoops and more than Elko. I do think Elko's a good hire. It's just, it's honestly, it's to me, it's just a hilarious second guy to get to be unsatisfied with Mark Stoops. And you just go get a guy who's almost built in the same Mark Stoops mold, who's also doing it at a basketball school. But but yeah, I think ultimately with with his ties to AM, he's already he's I think that's a that's a huge part of why he's getting this job. And and I think it I think it is a good hire ultimately. But I think uh, with how this worked out, I think there just is an added pressure. Like Jeremy Pruitt didn't have the longest, uh, the the longest rope. You know, like how long did he last? Three years. And uh, obviously, there's mm. obviously there's other stuff going on off the field with recruiting and all that. But I don't know. I think it kind of uh, it adds, it adds an extra magnifying glass like to his tenure just right off the bat. But I do think Elko is is a good hire for sure. No, I, I agree. And I think it'll be, it's a program with a lot of talent. We'll see who he's able to keep in the boat from these past couple of classes and who exits. But I mean, he's obviously got a lot of experience in the portal. And I think the reporting was he has a lot of good relationships, high school level in Texas. There's a lot of talent there. So that'll be good. And I mean, it's gonna be good football and a good battle. And I like the contrast between him and Sark uh, coming in the SEC. Great offensive mind, elite offensive mind versus elite defensive mind for, uh, for these guys. I'm very interested to see what he does at OC though um, for uh for mississippi state uh matt green both south carolina and florida are officially not going bowling here uh who in your estimation had a more disappointing season on their way to five and seven this year Ooh, that's a good question i with florida starting five and two it's like the the expectations were recalibrated so mm. there's definitely feels more disappointing. You lost five straight games to end the season. Like you needed to win one of those to make a bowl game. And obviously you played like three, what top 10, top 15 teams in that time. So it weren't going to be easy games, but Florida feels more. And then what they played at a conference with, uh, with Utah early on and, and obviously Tennessee and Kentucky early in the season. But, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think with Florida's schedule, you just give them a little more leeway. And it's it's year two. Obviously, we see a lot of year uh, jumps in year two. And Florida definitely did not have the year two bump by any means with Billy Napier. But with South Carolina... I don't know. It's it, it, there's not many games that South Carolina is is supposed to win that they, that they're not winning at the same time. But what are we in now? Year four of Shane Beamer, and we're missing bowl games. It's like it it kind of feels worse from South Carolina's perspective, even though Florida's got a higher standard of like where they expect to be. But I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I'm riding the fence. What? Who do you think is more disappointing? I think it's Florida. Like, there's still a lot of talent here. I think Florida starting five and two and finishing this way and losing all of your rivalry games outside of Tennessee early on this year. I mean, this was rough, and you had you had opportunities to win uh, this game, like obviously against uh, Florida State and up in their season late at home. And it's just not. I mean, it's embarrassing. Like when they implode. Florida really implodes and obviously the spitting stuff this week. Um, that wasn't a great look. The double targeting um, on Tate Roadmaker late that ended up costing the game because it was a penalty and it extends the drive and Benson runs it in. I don't know, man. You give up 52 to LSU. You're embarrassed there. You lose to a terrible Arkansas team at home that you just have to have. Um, I don't know, man. You look at it, you get destroyed by Kentucky on the road. This is just... This is rough, man. I, I just think if you're a Florida fan, you're like, this is not the norm. Like, I think this is embarrassing. Like, South Carolina, five and seven, it is what it is, man. Like, you're it's just, it, it just <laughs> that's like two, that's like two games below your goal. Yeah. Florida, there's a reason this has not happened in 70 years, going five and seven back to back years. Like, this is uncharted waters. And you're going into 2024 where the schedule's only getting harder. Like you're going to, it's going to be hard to get to five and seven next year. So I just look at it as like, I think it's Florida had the more embarrassing or just, I don't know if you're a Florida fan, you're just demoralized. I feel like South Carolina, you're like, bounce back. All right. We've got, we were about where we thought we were going to be seven and five, six and six. All right. We'll hit the portal hard, finish up strong. We have a couple uh good recruits and uh, they have a good edge guy, Stewart uh, from the DC area. Like they could, they could talk themselves into like seven and five, eight and four next year. But they don't have SEC championship expectations. Florida is the number three recruiting class right now in 247 for next year. This There's a lot of talent on this roster. You have two great backs. You have two great receivers in Wilson and Pearsall. Like, you have talent. Odom's now in the portal here uh, for Florida right out of the gate. But I'm like, I think Florida, they, there's just no excuse to be this bad, even in year two. Uh, and to fumble the bag down the stretch like this, five and two, I think it's Florida for me. And it's not really close. Yeah, I think you sold me because you look at this this five and seven for South Carolina. Look at these losses. Who who are they? Who are, who did they think preseason they were going to beat? <laughs> North Carolina, Georgia, at Tennessee, 
Florida, at Missouri, at Texas A&M, and Clemson. Probably just like, Missouri out of that. You didn't really think you were going to win many of those games coming yeah. in preseason, whereas Florida, obviously you can make that same argument with a, the Missouri. The Missouri is the expected there because no one expected them to be so good, but you didn't expect to get blasted to Kentucky uh, the mm-hmm. way you did. You also probably didn't – you may not have expected to beat Tennessee, so that was kind of a, a wash there. Going on the road at Utah, first game of the season was going to be tough anyways, but – the they didn't Arkansas, have their starting quarterback. The Arkansas one was the only bad yeah. loss down the stretch. I mean, it's it's you lost your last five, and and four of those teams were were in the top ten. I, oh, I guess LSU isn't isn't top ten, but mm. yeah. So they also had a lot of losable games on the schedule preseason, and I think that's what they when it was was it four four and a half preseason. Yeah. So I think they did go over that, but um. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. Just with the standard that's at Florida, and you started five and two. Like it, it doesn't really matter what we thought in August. When you start five and two, you should end up in a bowl game. So I to lose to the Arkansas an Arkansas team that had no pulse for most of the second half of the season, like it was just kind of inexcusable. Well, that's all I've got, Matt Green. Conference championship weekend ahead. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun games. UW, Oregon, Bama, Georgia, Florida State, Louisville. I'm not going to watch Michigan, Iowa. Um, is Texas- there at least, do we know the times of all the games? Like, is it at least, is Michigan, Iowa, like, <laughs> competing with something else? Because then if it's on the same I time as Louisville. I feel like it's always State. at night. I feel like that's always a night game. Yeah. Uh, that ACC and Big Ten are both at eight o'clock, and then yeah. you got uh, Pac-12 is on Friday, right? And yes. that's been several years in a row now. And then uh, it's it's weird to play the whole season at at noon, and then uh, it was big noon with the with the Big Ten, and uh, and wait till till Saturday night to decide the SEC champ or the Big Ten championship. But yeah, I think Georgia is what's sitting at like a five five and a half point favorite with Alabama early on. So I think that's actually changed. I think it may have opened at like three and a half, four. Um, and so there's a lot of activity on Georgia early on, but yeah, I'm excited for it, man. I also, the last thing I was going to say was um, we don't talk a lot of Heisman on here. And um, is there another argument for anyone not named Jaden Daniels to win the Heisman trophy right now? I think Carson Beck was getting in that conversation um, and obviously the team success was going to lead Carson Beck more than anything. I think Georgia, the way Georgia was able to run the ball, I think they ran for like 250 yards against Georgia Tech, and he didn't do much passing. I think Carson Beck's kind of out of the the actual Heisman legitimate talk. Outside of Bo Nix and Michael Penix, like I guess they're they're the other uh, the other candidates right now. But I think I think Jaden Daniels is the clear winner in my in my eyes. Do you see it differently? No, I think it's Jaden. I don't know if he's going to win, though. Like, I think Bo seems like he's going to win, especially if they win on Saturday. But I don't think he should. Like, you just watch those Oregon games. It's yak stuff. It's all the playmakers. Like, Bo's been solid. But at no point have I felt that Bo Nix is the best quarterback in the country and not even really close. And I just, I don't know. It's a narrative thing. He's a feel-good story. Oregon's awesome. But Jaden Daniels is doing ungodly stuff week over week. And I just... It's a Johnny Manziel type year for Jaden Daniels. I just I don't know how you don't give it to Daniels, even with this team going nine and three, because wins aren't totally a QB stat. And they should like when you have a defense that bad and that, like some of the stuff he's done, especially like at Mizzou. And I mean, what he did against Florida and this, that, and the other. Like, I mean, it's just Jaden. I'd say it's the- more. 
Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say, like, I just I don't know what he's supposed to do. Like, he can't put yeah. play defense. Yeah, I'd say it's more the Tebow, RG three, Lamar Jackson mm. uh, type of Heisman, where like Johnny Manziel had the Heisman moment and the the beating the best the best win of the season and all that. You know, even though they didn't have the team quote unquote success, they went like eleven and two, but they didn't win anything per se, a conference, a call, uh, or anything like that. But yeah, it, it seems like sometimes the stats are just so undeniable. And it's like Jaden Daniels, you watch this guy play, and he's just he's absurd what he does. And I think I think he's now the fifth guy in SC history with uh, 50 plus touchdowns, and the other four all won the Heisman. And I don't know those off the top of my head, but I think it's Tebow, Cam Newton, and Joe Burrow, and is Johnny Manziel? Did he have 50 total touchdowns? Th- those might be the four right there. But I feel like that's the case. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know how many how many uh, touchdowns like Danny Werfel threw for or something. I don't I don't know. I don't but know. Probably Who not cares? that. Thirty. Let me see. Let me see. Thirty-seven. Oh yeah. Um, Johnny Manziel had twenty-six and twenty-one. So he only had forty-seven total touchdowns. Um, in twenty twelve. So I'm not sure who that fifth one is, but yeah, I saw that stat earlier, and yeah, Jane Daniels to me, he is he's been the best player in college football. Give him the award. Bo Nix wins it. I feel like there's this idea that if you you're hating on Bo Nix or you say anything negative about Bo Nix, it's that like, oh, that's you're just talking Auburn Bo Nix. You have paid. it's like no, we we acknowledge he's gotten better, but it is like you said, it's a lot of short stuff. I was impressed in that Oregon State game. It was he was there's a lot more of the downfield throws, and I was kind of expecting kind of you've seen a lot throughout the year, but still, it's a lot of yak stuff. Like you're saying, he's he's like eight, completely like eighty percent of his passes. It's cool, but. But Jaden Daniels, this guy is is just on another level. It's RG three was was doing his game on Saturday. You know RG three is just like yes, this is the Heisman track track speed, big time stats. RG three will sign off on that all day. Matt Green, always a pleasure, and I'll talk to you in a couple days. All right, welcome back, Tennessee Sports Guys, here on a Sunday night where I am joined, as always, by my good friends, Rocky Top Insider, Ryan Shumpert himself, the one, the only Rocky Top Insider many are saying. Ryan, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Glad to be back on here. And I don't know, I don't know if there's really any true glowing remarks about a win over Vanderbilt, but after the last two weeks, this one should be a little less bleak, I guess. Hey, you got to be inside in a nice, cushiony, warm press box, I imagine, out, uh, rather than the good folks who sat out in the cold for what was like a, what, three and a half hour game, four hour game. Four, uh, four hour the, game. Yeah, very cold. There couldn't be me. Could not be me uh, sitting in that. So, uh, no, I was still uh, on my way back, actually, from Atlanta. Um, so I watched the first quarter in my in the car um, and. uh that was that was an interesting time, but we'll get into that Vanderbilt game momentarily. Jack Foster of Always College Football is here as he, let me check my notes here, always is. Jack, good evening, sir. How are you? Hey, pretty good. It's a great Sunday. Uh, can't believe the regular season's over. It's a little sad. You know, I was watching Cal UCLA like a sicko and Cal thump UCLA. <laughs> that, it wasn't even close. And I was like, man, it's the last Pac-12 game. It's the last regular season game, but next week should be a lot of fun, so still more enjoyment to be had from the college football season, but sucks that it's pretty much over now. It got him to bowl eligibility, right? Isn't Cal bowl yeah, eligible? Cal and J- Justin Williams, Thomas bowl eligible. 
Good for him. He's from Chase's alma mater, right? No. Uh, who was the Who was the dude that the running back that was either committed or briefly? Oh, Cody Brown at or, Tennessee. Um, Co- I think it's Cody. I think it was Cody Brown. He went that to Miami. Right. Kind of. He when okay. the Pruitt shift happened, he went to uh, he went to Miami. I don't know where he finished though. Okay. He's a four star. I don't know why I have. Him and yeah, him and Justin Williams Thomas. I just have it's the same person because they were like four star backs from Georgia. That I don't think they didn't necessarily play like four star four stars in college. Also, am I misremembering or was he a Stanford running back too? Did he like go he went to, to Stanford for like and had a cup of coffee and then transferred to Cal? Okay, yeah. I don't even know if he went there, but he was committed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I he was in Cal by the time fall camp started for sure. Uh, I love the idea of him like pitting a, like the professors at Cal and Stanford against each other because that's clearly an academic reason like to go like to choose between those two schools. So very bright kid. I just have this idea of him like getting on the phone, like just getting the philosophy uh, professor on the line for Cal, and then getting the philosophy professor on the line for Stanford. Be like, all right, what do you got? Uh, what is the curriculum? What does that calendar look like this fall? What are we going to be talking about? What books am I going to be are going to be in play? What? Uh, how much influence do I have in in terms of what's uh, coming down the pike here? I uh, I have a very funny Justin Williams Thomas story. Just very quickly. Um, I love this. Very so niche for this podcast. Fire Sports kind of mm. launched in the, their whole partnership with Tennessee and all that launch. They held this big event at mm. the Hyatt Hotel downtown, and this was before the 2022 season started. Mm. Um, and Hendon and Cedric were like the people that were showing off the shirts, they were there speaking about it, about NIL, all this stuff. And they also had Justin Williams Thomas there. Mm. And he was like portrayed as the future. Mm. It was like, okay, Hendon and Cedric are the now. And we got Justin over here. He's the future. He spoke a little bit later, like a bunch of the baseball team members came and I'm not, you know, trying to rag on Justin Williams. I think he's a great running back and, you know, just didn't work out at Tennessee. And, but, and I talked to him that night. He he's a great guy, but it was it is kind of interesting to look back on it. And he was like the future of this whole thing. And then he was he played in what four games for Tennessee and then transferred after one year. So wow, yeah, no, I mean he was the future, just not at Tennessee. Uh, he was the future. I should have shipped Nico in for the for the press conference. Goodness gracious. Um, speaking of Nico Iamaliava, we got to see him uh, a little bit, uh, not too much, uh, because uh, Josh Heupel would like for me to watch as much as the Vanderbilt football game as humanly possible before I uh, divvy all my attention onto the Iron Bowl and what happened there late. Um, 24 hours later, though, Tennessee smacks Vanderbilt. The game was really never close after the first chick, uh, trick play by Vanderbilt, which was pretty good. Like It was pretty cool trick play, the camera crew. I was completely uh, faked out there and then looked like maybe Tennessee's defense was going to be sleepy enough and without so many bodies that Vanderbilt was going to be able to put up enough points. I will say the lock of the week was Vandy covering. Like that was one I felt really good about going into this week uh, based on how we've seen this Tennessee team the last couple weeks and also just the the rash of injuries uh, that have uh, taken over this Tennessee roster at this point. But uh, 24 hours later, Ryan Shepard, what are you still thinking about from – the Commodores uh, going down once again to uh, Tennessee and Neyland. I don't know the brouhaha, how funny that was, how annoying the fact that it was a four-hour game, the absurdity of Joe Milton crowning himself uh, as a touchdown <laughs> celebration, all of those things, very little about the game. I mean, mm. 
Tennessee came out and did what it should have done. And, I, you know, I guess that's not a given. Given they've played pretty bad uh, against, I don't even know if worse opponents, because UTSA would, would beat Vanderbilt. But, you know, some lesser opponents this season, too, on, on Vanderbilt's caliber. So, I mean, it was good for Tennessee to go out and take care of business like like they should have. But, you know, it's not like anything from the game was super interesting. It's also like the most Joe Milton thing ever to have his best game as a Tennessee volunteer in his last home game inside Neela once it's all over and the four losses are there. And it's just that that I can't get over. It's like I we should have seen it coming that Joe was going to look like if he had looked like anywhere close to that uh, most weeks of the season, the season looks uh, pretty different uh, for Tennessee. But alas, that uh, it's still a great way for Joe Milton to go up. But the crowning was quite funny. Um, but it is what it is jack foster what about you 24 hours later what are you still thinking about is it the brouhaha uh that ryan alluded to with the officials uh my biggest takeaway is that i'm glad for ryan that he gets to say that word over and over again Mm -hmm. and and it maintains relevance for 48 to 72 hours give or take so Mm -hmm. uh congratulations (laughs) ryan for getting to use it in a headline and say it on two podcasts and write it multiple times i know you love that but no that's not what i'm still thinking about it what you said, Chase, it's that Joe Milton had his best game at Tennessee and, you know, what was his final regular season game as of all? We'll see if he how much or if he plays in the bowl game. But, yeah, it's just kind of weird that he throws for nearly 400 yards and has six total touchdowns, just annihilates Vanderbilt and was so good yesterday. And, and I know it's Vanderbilt, much lesser competition than the Clemsons of the world, which he had a good game or anybody else, but – you know, for six total touchdowns, I mean, the numbers don't lie. So Joe Milton was really good yesterday. We finally saw it this year. It's just, it was the 12th game of the year. And that's the thing. Like Joe was awesome. Like this really was like a great Joe Milton game. Like he had some dimes. He was moving. Like he had way more off platform throws that looked really good than we've seen all year long. He was a lot more comfortable. He never ran uh, still. Like that was something we did not see as much uh, in this one, but I mean, by and large, he was great. Squirrel uh, had some early struggles, and then he broke through. Um, he had an, a, a good day. The weird part, though, I would say, and I don't know if y'all agree with this, I did not, like, Jalen Wright, uh, shout out to Jalen for breaking 1,000 yards, first uh, Tennessee back to break 1,000 yards since Jalen Hurt almost a decade ago, which is pretty crazy to think about that it's been uh, nearly a decade since uh, this has happened uh, at UT with the, uh, the amount of just unbelievable running backs that have come through this program over the years, but... I just thought it was odd that like Tennessee actually really struggled. Like Dylan Sampson didn't really have, find any running lanes here. Um, Jalen Wright had some, but he didn't have the big breakaway touchdown run or anything like that. And this one that I think a lot of us probably would have thought based on how this season has gone for Jalen, that he would have one big one in this game. But Tennessee was able to, they were able to pass the ball to set up the run for the first time all year. And that was something we got so used to last, the last two years with Hendon that like, it was kind of like, uh, overwhelming to see it again of like oh yeah this is what this offense used to look like that was like the most uh 2022 hypo offense that i've seen all year long did y'all feel the same definitely yeah yeah Yeah, i mean you're right it it felt like the you know the offense didn't run through the running backs didn't Mm. go through the running backs at all It, it went through joe and it went through the receivers and it went through the big plays i mean how often did you see receivers just wide open in the third level so you know, that was just kind of the story of the game. Um, yeah, I think Jalen ran pretty well. It, it, the thing is, is, you know, you look at the total carry numbers and it, it was a good amount. They ran the ball, but it didn't really feel like they were running the ball a lot. Mm. You know, Joe uh, Jalen Wright didn't even get the 62 yards in the first half. I thought he'd get it in the first quarter. Mm. And, you know, they didn't use Dylan Sampson a lot either. either. So that's just kind of how the game went and Joe got his numbers. 
Yeah, I mean, what was the most impressive thing to you, Ryan, about what Joe did in this game? Uh, was there a particular throw that impressed you the most? What What about Joe in this one separated his other performances? I don't even necessarily think it. I guess it's just the consistency that separated mm. from his other performances. I mean, you mentioned off off kilter throws and off script throws. I mean, I thought we saw a decent bit of that against Alabama and Kentucky, mm. but just never stringing it together for multiple games and. Uh, even just on the quick, easy stuff, like he was accurate. He didn't complete all of them, but more of those, you know, with some, there was some squirrel white drops. Like he was just consistent. And, you know, for the most part, everything was kind of there because they were playing a Vanderbilt team that wasn't very good. And I think you mentioned the lack of success or maybe not overwhelming success from the run game. Like a lot of that's the fact that you have three offensive line starters out and you have another one moved and not playing at the position that, he's usually starting at. And then I also think Vanderbilt kind of stacked the box a little bit, which uh, gave Tennessee a lot of opportunities to just throw those kind of quick screens. And there were plays to be made there because Vanderbilt was loading the box and because Vanderbilt secondary was groundbreakingly slow. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think when you talk about Milton, he certainly was good. Uh, I don't mean to diminish that, but it, it just felt like he did. That's what we've said in the past. Josh, I've often good because so much of it's so simple. Like I just felt like he did the simple things really consistently. And then he made uh, a couple of those off script plays that he's, you know, he's made this season just hasn't been able to make consistently through a, a game to game standpoint. And shout out to the tight ends. Great day. Yeah. Um, I wish Castles yeah. was back. I think he would have been really, oh, really fun be in year two with the system. Cause he was really comfortable in this game and really comfortable down the stretch. I wish we got Castles back for one more year. Yeah, he's been a nice addition this year. I, I like the way he plays, and I feel like he has really good awareness of where the ball mm. is, just able to locate it. Like, I know you're going to ask this later probably, but one of the best play, my favorite play of the game was the touchdown to Cali. Um, mm. You know, just just over the DB's head. It, it was a great throw and catch. And, you know, Jacob Bourne, I mean, he's one of the best guys on the team. Like him going out of his way to thank the media at the end of the press conference, just a class act. So it was good to see him have a big senior day, you know, just from a emotional standpoint and, you know, him going out in style like that. Ryan, you're smirking over yeah, there. Like what was that smirk? Ryan's going to make me laugh. Ryan's smirking over here. No, I mean, you are right. Jacob Warren is a, is a class act. He's a great dude. It's just, there's nothing. One of my favorite funny things in media is whenever a player like thanks the media, it's just, uh, <laughs> I guarantee the media is going to call the class act. And it's all, it's all accurate in this case. It's all accurate for Jacob Warren. I don't mean to lead it in He's always been one of the best interviews on the team. No, he is. He is yeah. one of the best interviews on the team and gives insightful answers. It, that was just such like a media trope uh, that it just it made, me, it made me chuckle. You know what would have been awesome? Like Kamal just being like, actually, not a fan. Like uh, Kamal Haddon just comes out and is just like, didn't enjoy it this year. Not gonna lie. Well, Kamal, Kamal never talked to the media, so he, yeah, he just, and he wasn't gonna be given that opportunity yesterday, even if he was playing. Yeah, can't what if Jer Yeah, uh, go ahead. Can't believe they didn't put Tyler Barron on the panel last night. You know, senior day for him had a, had a good night. Big game. Yeah. Goodness gracious. I mean, <laughs> I will say though, am I crazy? Did did he not hear the whistle? Because I didn't hear the whistle on screen. I mean, do we think he the knew? What what is the final? The, the final answer on this. Do you think Tyler Barron knew the whistle blew and it was a dirty hit, or do you think he didn't hear it? I mean, it's hard to say for sure. We're talking about the first one, right? Yeah, the first one. The first one, not the second one. It's hard to say for sure, 
to me, the whistle was pretty clear, and it was pretty okay. clear everyone stopped playing. And again, I don't, I don't know what's going on inside. I can't say it was intentional. I thought he should have been given a 15-yard penalty for that one. Yeah. Second one, I don't think anyone knew the whistle was blown until three minutes after the play was over, basically, when yeah. they finally calmed Clark Lee down enough to call a false start <laughs> or delay a game, whatever it was. Yeah, I've never seen that either. Like a delay a game and you let the whole play play out. Like, and then you just call it. That was, that was just the, the back-to-back there was pretty crazy. And also, quarterbacks, you got to spike the ball. When that happens, when you think you hear the yep. whistle and you play, spike the ball. Because I don't think Tyler Brand makes that hit if he spikes the ball. I think yep. he knows at that That's point. True. Um, That needs to be uh, trained. Biggest moment of the game for you, Jack Foster, was what? Your favorite play, we know. The, the play to McAllen Castles. But what was your favorite uh, favorite moment? What was the biggest moment in this game? Or maybe even the turning point? Uh, okay, well, if we're going turning point, it's hard to say just because it was a lopsided win. But I'll, I'll say just Tennessee, you know, adjusting defensively because Vanderbilt scored in three plays, I believe, uh, just very quickly. It was, you know, blow for blow and, mm. you know, seven to seven. And then Tennessee punts and that it's like, okay, here we go. Is Tennessee going to actually struggle with Vanderbilt? They've been terrible the last two weeks. Is Tennessee actually going to struggle with Vanderbilt today? But then the defense, um, you know, prevented any sort of close game from happening there on out, really, in the first half. And it ended up being 45-10 to 10 at one point. I mean, this was a blowout. I know it was a 24-point win, but Tennessee blew out Vanderbilt yesterday. So just the defense adjusting, you know, forcing punts after that first drive, I thought was really what made the difference in this game and allowed Tennessee's offense to – coast if you will what about you ryan i would say the the drive after the, all the the melee and the kerfuffle where tennessee probably one of its best two minute drives of the season it goes mm. right down the field gets a, a pass interference call um that was pretty obvious pretty terrible play by the defense back i think it would have been a pretty uncatchable <laughs> but it was just so blatant and far away from where the pass was intended i think they had to call it and then this seed tennessee executes and, and goes in capitalizes on that, you know, with whatever it was, 10 seconds, one timeout, you're kind of playing the the math game there a little bit. And from that point, again, the game was already over, but Tennessee, or maybe the game wasn't over. Vanderbilt wasn't going to win, even Tennessee doesn't score there. But that, that makes it a 21-point game at halftime, makes it really comfortable. And obviously Vanderbilt, I think, got the ball to start the second half. So feasibly 14-point game, Vanderbilt makes a drive. They can make it a little competitive. But one other moment I'll add, you said he was your lock of the week or, or whatever your phrase about Vanderbilt covering. Yeah, you got lucky. To the Vanderbilt better, shout out D. Williams for muffing that punt because Vanderbilt was not yeah. was not covering that game. If D. Williams doesn't muff a punt inside True. the 10-yard line uh, and, and Vanderbilt gets a touchdown there and then Tennessee's got, you know, it's second and third string in on a day where they were already missing a lot of players and Vanderbilt got another touchdown. So uh, in a game that was never truly in doubt from, you know, the actual – result uh the d williams muff punt was was a huge moment moment uh for those betting on the spread yeah i will also say we'll talk about another moment that affected the the final spread here uh that hypel is now really into doing uh that i'm curious to get y'all's perspective on because uh i have a take on this but um we'll talk about in a second um best performance uh for you in this game was it joe milton or was it uh the coaching was it uh, a position group as a whole what was the best performance for you jack yeah, it's Joe Milton, but shout out to the pass rush. Um, this mm. is a group that had kind of disappeared down the stretch in the back half of the season. And, you know, they were wreaking havoc against Vanderbilt yesterday. James Pierce, especially, uh, doesn't show on the stat sheet, but that dude lived in the backfield. And Tyler Barron, too. We kind of mentioned him already. He had a really good day. So those two, shout out to a great regular season finale. I don't know. Tyler Barron had a great day. I think Tyler, Tyler Barron, I mean, 
obviously we're going to remember what his uh the, the moment of what uh, happened with the melee and everything it just felt like he was in the mix on a lot of plays too i mean james like i said james pierce was more noticeable but well i was going to say is like josh josephs actually popped like he uh, that was like the best josh josephs game right of the year that was the most i've seen josh josephs maybe this whole year i thought he was really good that was a big surprise to me as joseph was actually pretty pretty good on the other side of james pierce and if Tennessee is able to turn both of those guys into elite edge guys going into next year, and they have a great offseason. I'm excited. I'm excited about that. Was one of those games at the end where I was like, Ooh, this is cool. Josh Josephs and James Pierce, year three. We're so back. Well, I mean, hold on, just to be clear, because many forget before the year, my prediction of James Pierce being a breakout guy on the edge. Feel really good about that one. That was probably my one big hit of the year for Tennessee football. You deserve all the flowers. I'm here. Hit of the century, some would say. Yeah, I mean, many are saying actually, but <laughs> I do, I do yeah. love how we. I feel like we've talked about it a lot. How every time he's had a big game, he's just been quiet for the last month. So you said, if you haven't, if you don't remember, I was all, I was all over this one. Yeah. And you were so kudos to you. Also, they weren't doubling, like, Vandy. What are you doing? Like he was just no chips, no anything. James Pierce, like you cannot win one on one with the uh, the Vandy offensive tackles. Those poor guys were just getting shredded by Pierce on the edge. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. I, my, my answer to your question, I think it's Joe Milton who had the best day. And mm. The tight ends would probably be my next one, but we already talked about them. So another guy I'll, I'll shout out is Ramel Keaton. has had a pretty disappointing season. I had a big day to end this year. Too long, too long touchdown catches, and including one. I mean, I talked about the Vanderbilt secondary being slow. Ramel Keaton, solid player, not a, not quite the speedster, and he, he made the Vanderbilt – <laughs> he looked like Tyreek Hill outrunning the Vanderbilt defensive backs on that kind of comeback route uh, when he made kind of one stutter move and just ran past with the whole secondary. So uh, for a guy kind of, again, the the senior day theme, uh, a lot of Tennessee seniors had good games yesterday. Ramelke definitely had his best uh, of his season as well. Um, Worst performance uh, from you, Jack, was what? Um, Worst performance. I don't. I don't really have a great answer. Uh, oh, Jack, I got you. Okay, help me out. I, I, I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. It's the entire offensive line depth because, oh well, my God. Nice. Like, we're at a point where this game was like, I, they were mixing and matching. Like, Jackson Lampley, like, it's nothing against Jackson Lampley. Like, it's just, he, the PFF grade match what I was saying. Like, I'm just sitting there and I'm watching and I'm like, uh-oh. This, this is a problem where you're like, is uh, we're passing a lot here. And I don't know if that was part of what uh, happened with the run game was just how injured. Like, Cooper going out immediately was like, oh, man. But Ollie Lane deserves all the flowers, man. He has played every position, basically, on this offensive line this year. And he, in, in fitting fashion, his last uh, moment in kneeling is he has to move over again and play center uh, when Cooper goes down. But... I thought he was solid, but Mincy having to play no Jack Campbell in this game, which was kind of strange, especially that's his last uh, opportunity uh, in Nealon. Potentially, well, I, I really, really hope uh, they can talk him back into uh, sticking around for one more year. Uh, but it seems how unlike... he has another year is <laughs> one of the more absurd, absurd things. Hold on, can we uh, draw we... the line? Can the NCAA come in and draw the line after six-year senior? No seventh-year players. I mean, there are Cam Rising is entering year seven next year. Well, I, under, I understand. I'm just saying that it's ridiculous. Uh, I, I don't get I, it. At that point, the, the COVID year, I'm fine with it. But at the yeah. point where the COVID year is giving you a seventh season, that's almost two full college <laughs> tenures. 
Look, man. That's ridiculous. But it just means more down here. Hold on. I have a very, this is a very fair and balanced take. I think it's ridiculous when it doesn't benefit the Tennessee Volunteers. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. I think John, that's, John yeah. Campbell should be allowed to come back. I, yeah. you know, this Tennessee's okay. offensive line depth, as you said, is, is so bad. I mean, no young players. Like, there's none. Like, Addison no. Nichols, a little bit, but that's my thing is the worst performance is like, no young guys like they didn't even throw like the game was out of reach and we still didn't see any young guys like that was the biggest alarm bell to me of worst performances like there's no young freshman sophomore that they believe in right now so your loser is depth not necessarily yeah just like the performance of like loser in terms of like y'all didn't play anybody like you didn't see what you had in clipper and reddick and grant and like this like so many dudes where i'm like grant was out for what it's worth oh was he out okay but I mean, I don't know. No, I'm not sure we would have seen him anyway. But he was not a lot of Addison Nichols even really. I mean, he played a little bit, but I don't know. You would have liked to have seen more Bison Lang, uh, more in this one, especially if Cooper doesn't come back. Addison I mean, Nichols did play a lot for what it's worth. He how many snaps did he get? Sixty-seven. Did he get sixty-seven? Okay, he, he, I, I think hurt. he played every snap after Cooper got hurt. Okay, yeah, pretty much. That's good. But I don't know. It's uh, by oh, and large, it's just. I am so curious how the offensive line is dealt with uh, in the in the portal over the next couple of weeks and recruiting as they wrap up some big names. Hopefully, Jordan Seaton is able to uh, get in the boat here because that's a that's a huge huge thing if they can pull that off. Because if you have Ben Warren and uh, Jordan Seaton at the two tackle spots going into next year and see maybe get one of Mincy and um, Campbell back, I mean you're real you feel really good about your protection on the outside for Joe Milton, but. Look, Ollie Lane did had a great year. Andre will be back. We'll see what that looks like. Um, we'll see what happens with Addison this offseason. I feel like it's a big offseason for him. Big offseason for Bryson Lang. Um, I don't know. We'll see. But Dane Davis, trooper till the end. Uh, another guy who played like every position at UT. But it was just a lot of... I guess, is it a positive that Tennessee is able to just move guys around like that and still survive and win and you didn't really notice? Like, I mean, they were able to just... It seemed like they could put anybody in any spot in the offensive line yesterday, and they still would have won the game by three-plus scores. I think that speaks more to Vanderbilt than it does yeah. Tennessee, personally. That's I mean, I think I, I, I texted it in our mess group thread, like, just with what Tennessee was – I mean, obviously Tennessee played well, so it's not a comment to necessarily their performance, but just with what Tennessee had out there from an injury standpoint yesterday, it's like you feel good about them beating, like Arkansas, Mississippi State, and Vanderbilt. Not to say they couldn't have beaten any other teams in the SEC, but it's not like you're feeling great about it when Tennessee's having to trot out. They would have needed Joe Milton to play well uh, against just about anybody else. And obviously he did, but uh, that obviously has not been a given this season either. Jack, what did you make of the officiating in this game? What was the most egregious? What was the, the craziest part of the officiating in this one? The same officials from Tennessee, Alabama, by the way, I think. Oh, nice. Uh, the craziest part of the officiating was allowing the fight to even happen. I mean, they lost complete control of everything. And not hearing the whistle on the delay of game, I don't even think it was blown. We No one even knew it was a delay of game until two to three minutes after everything had unraveled there for a second. And you know how chippy they are going into the third and 39. Like, be so alert to prevent something from happening. And they they badly failed at doing so because uh, all hell broke loose. But, yeah, just allowing that to escalate like that. And, you know, Clark Lee, he's to blame a little bit too because him getting so fired up like that and just acting like a madman, I think, contributed to everything. But, um, yeah, the officials 
kind of being a factor in all that going down, I think was pretty bad and pretty embarrassing. Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, I would echo Jackson. The Cork lead was a match. I mean, it happened. I can't remember the other time. It happened another time in the game, too. I think it was early and earlier. And there was he wanted a pass interference, which was a pass interference on third down. And he came again, like running, sprinting out on the field, like past the numbers. It was like the farthest I've ever seen a coach out on the field. Um, I think specifically with that sequence where I'll say where I think they really messed up is after the delay game. So the second time that AJ Swan took a hit when the play was blown dead. And this is when Clark Lee was going crazy. So obviously some of the refs were preoccupied, but for like, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds, like Tennessee's defense line and Vanderbilt's offense line were just like jawing at each other and pushing each other a little bit. And no one ever came in to like clean it up. I mean, I think it was maybe Dominique Bailey. It was Tyler Barron and somebody else was talking to him. And Dominique Bailey was one of them. Someone came in and kind of like pulled the Tennessee guys away, but like that, it easily could have escalated worse there. And I just think the fact that the two sides were able to talk to each other and allowed it to get chippy for such an extended period of time while they were trying to figure out what had happened then with no ref ever stepping in and doing anything to de-escalate it uh, was a big part of the reason that it, it flared up after the next play. Yeah. It's just, it's just kind of wild. This was all avoidable. Like, this is one of those where you're like, what are y'all doing? Like, you could have nipped this in the bud. You could just see it. Like, everyone in the building, every coaching staff, like, the coaching staff felt it. All of this could have been avoided. Like, the fact that it happened back-to-back and then, I mean, just the Vanderbilt offensive lineman with the cheap shot there, like that, you could see that brewing. It's a good thing that didn't balloon out up more than it. Yes, because I think that really was a sneaky one could've. that's forgotten. It's like, that cheap shot yeah. could have easily turned this into way more of a melee and a really, really big mess. Yeah, I could. And, I mean, it was ridiculously late like yes absurdly late yeah so that's i mean i didn't you know we were criticizing clerkly like i'd say credit to the vanderbilt coaches there they were very it was obviously kind of on that sideline and they were very quick to get out and kind of you know stand between the sideline and the field and make sure no players from vanderbilt ran on the field like you know it happened a couple minutes earlier Clark Creek's credit, like I get it in terms of the quarterback. Like you just want to protect your guy and you see the him take two back-to-back shots on issues that really stem from the officials, right? Like making sure that they have control of the game, making sure players hear the whistle, making sure that uh, play is stopped before you have a dead ball just shot uh, to your guy. You're already banged up the quarterback spot. Like I understand that part of it, but there is a level of like you got to control your emotions a little bit. You got you to gotta be better uh, about um that because like vanity fed off of it the players fed off it they saw their coach really really hyped up and angry and i just think Mm -hmm. it's just easy to permeate onto the onto the team and football's a violent sport and it's just that's just how it went but thankfully it did not get uh worse in this one but man just a rough rough year for sec officiating all across the board in tennessee uh, was an issue but i will i want to ask you this like (laughs) ryan this another highly penalized game for tennessee in this one is it just something that we just have to accept? Because uh, everyone writes, uh, I'm reading the recaps and different people uh, write about uh, Tennessee. It's like, they got to clean it up. The uh, Josh Heupel has got to really clean it up. And then you read a preview. Heupel and the Tennessee, they really need to clean up their penalties from a week ago. They were penalized blank for blank. And I just, at a certain point, you're like, eh, you almost made the playoff with a team that was penalized actually more than this year's team was penalized uh, across the full season. It's annoying, it's frustrating, but I don't think it's going to be the end-all be-all in terms of whether or not you can get to where you want to go as a program. I don't know. That's where I'm at. 
Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I haven't really thought about it a ton, so I don't have a maybe necessarily very concise. Wow, can't speak. Um, answer to that. I think offensively, that's probably fair. I think the offensive issues, just some of it with the tempo, they're going to have some of the pre-snap issues. And I think probably the way they space the field so much uh, makes some, some holding calls more obvious where, you know, some teams, you got everybody inside and it's just a lot going on. It's going to be easier to get away with a hold. Defensively, I think it's where they got to clean it up. I just, multiple times this season, yesterday was probably the worst. And to Josh Bible's credit, he kind of said as much after the game, like they just weren't disciplined on defense. And I didn't think they were disciplined there really all season. And, uh, I can't, you know, I think Jeremy Banks was a pretty undisciplined player and it had some issues. I can't think besides him the last two years that was a big problem for defense or not. But the defense is working on margins that are smaller. And, and this is not going to be an elite defense, I don't think much, at least in the Josh Heupel tenure. So I don't think you can make those mistakes. And they're just simple discipline mistakes. Whereas the offensive mistakes, I think both, obviously not this season, but I think generally speaking, Josh Heupel's offenses are more attuned to be able to overcome some penalties, especially at home, especially when they, you know, they just don't have their, you know, tires in the mud and they can't get anything started. And then also just the fact that some of them is, I think, a little bit of product of, of the system and the offense that they're running. Do you share that sentiment, Jack? Yeah, I agree. And I think Ryan had a tweet yesterday. It was uh, one of Tennessee's first drives and they had a holding penalty and it was on first down and they were approaching midfield, I want to say. So obviously first yep. and 20 and Ryan tweeted, there's the inevitable holding call to kill the drive. Like, mm-hmm. like put a fork in it's done. You know, it's first and 20 doesn't matter. Drives over and they punt it. Uh, mm-hmm. They did not pick up the first down. Um, so yeah, it, these, you know, that that's an offensive penalty. I do agree that it's more noticeable on the defensive side of things, but Sometimes, you know, when you're looking at this year, too, I don't know if this is going to be something that continues, but you couldn't have offensive penalties this year because of who you had at quarterback and just because how this offense ran this year and it wasn't near as efficient as last year. But yeah, I mean, they've all they've been among the top 30 to 40 teams in the FBS and as far as penalized teams. So it is something to keep track of, but I'm not losing sleep over it. I guess that's that's kind of my take on it. We agree. Um, PFF grades that felt right felt wrong for you, Ryan. Well, I'll just say that my PFF you didn't you didn't take my PFF stat this week. I appreciate it. You saved yeah, it for I, me. Look, I'm I'm taking back. I, I heard what you said last week, and I'm I'll I'll stick away from it. I'll I'll give you your <laughs> shine here, Ryan. And I almost brought it up earlier, but oh, what stood out the most to me was just the fact that Tennessee's four highest graded defenders were all freshmen sophomores and it mm. was james pierce and josh josephs who we talked about a little bit earlier but it was jeremiah t lander who earned yeah. a 90.8 grade and played really well and ricky gibson again who it feels like every time we've seen ricky gibson on the field he's played well and, and it feels like he's one of those guys that's almost definitively going to be a starter next year and i know a lot can happen in the offseason but it, it just makes too much sense for him to step in up into a spot and really Kamal had a spot that you know it will be gone um, and gave Judy Lolly. Yeah, I need, I'm, I'm planning on running the numbers tomorrow. I know and what every senior can and can't come back. So I'm not positive on him, but if he, if he has gone uh, stepping into one of those spots. So I, I think that's the good sign. That's maybe the most positive thing is just that the young players for Tennessee. You talked about the young players on, on the offensive line that didn't even get really get the opportunities, the young players on Tennessee's defense, continue to get opportunities this season maybe not as much as people would have wanted especially in the secondary but those guys 
played well in this one. And I feel like as a whole, you could see Tennessee's freshman, sophomore defenders that Josh Heupel and his staff have recruited. And a lot of them have been higher rated recruits and have been kind of the guys that you're waiting for the talent level to catch up uh, for the defense. They, it feels like all those guys got better over the course of the season. And it, the Vanderbilt game certainly kind of barred that out. Absolutely. Um, uh, T-Lander's going to be a dude. T-Lander, yeah. he, he might be a big winner from Carter missing out. Like, I think Carter was going to be good regardless. I mean, it sucks that he didn't get those reps down the stretch. And obviously, a lot of fanfare, high publicity, beating Alabama for him late in the process uh, in state kit. But I don't know. I mean, T-Lander, I think, is a huge win. And like you said, Gibson playing a lot more snaps this week was good. But John Slaughter gets one snap in this game. Like, <laughs> Jalen McCullough, who... That was it for him. He was solid this year. I think he had a good bounce back year. He was. Uh, for Tennessee. No Wesley Walker, and then Andre Turntime plays a bunch of snaps, and you just don't get a lot of other reps. Like, I don't understand the Jordan Matthews thing at all that he didn't Yeah, what about, like, even Warren Burrell getting 18 snaps? Yeah. Why? What are we doing? I I don't understand it, because it's just... I mean, I guess that's... Because Warren Burrell's not back, right? This is it for him. No, he's not back. Okay. So, like, what are we doing? Like, Christian Charles can't get on the field or excuse me not christian charles uh christian conyer can't get on the field because we really didn't see him at all but jordan matthews has been the biggest head scratcher to me at the corner spot um because ricky gibson like you said it does certainly feel like he's a locked in starter going into next year because that dude he's big he looks pretty big for a true freshman too like he's just tall and lanky I, he he pops when you watch him he's not afraid of contact pretty confident player which you have to be on the on the perimeter i don't know i i'm pretty optimistic there but like you're losing a lot of freaking snaps with wesley walker and Andre, uh Jalen mccullough leaving and you gave no no snaps to anybody in those spots all year long so i'm very interested especially to mary mcdonald if he's not back you're looking at three new spots where those guys played a crap load of snaps the last th- two years and you didn't develop anyone behind them so it's going to be a bunch of new faces and i guess you're going to hit the portal hard there because too because i don't I don't know. Do y'all think that they're going to go internal on all three of those spots if they are all gone? No, I don't think so. And I, I, I think I'm much more worried about the safety spot than the corner spots going into next year. The one guy <laughs> I will say in house that I, I'm pretty high on is Jordan Thomas. I he was out or not yeah. officially out, but I'm. Assuming. But he didn't play much I mean, this year at all. No, he didn't. They didn't. I mean, he didn't play anybody at those three yep. spots. Uh, but he played a lot in the Missouri game, and I thought. Mm. Not a lot went well in that Missouri game, but I thought for the most part he played decent. And Tamara McDonald is one of those guys that one of those seniors that didn't go through senior day, so definitely seems like he's at least heavily considering coming back. And if he does, I think it'll be interesting as to where everybody necessarily gets matched up at. And they move trying to move Jordan Thomas back to safety. It just feels like he's of their internal options. Um, he's one of their best, and they're definitely gonna have to hit the portal. I mean, I think Danico should go back to safety, right? Like at this point, I think he spent all offseason putting him back there because I think you have more depth at corner. I just felt like he was never comfortable at corner. He just never, it never worked, I don't think, with him there. It was more by just depth issues, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he, he had Judy Lolly, who, you know, ended up becoming, you know, pretty solid. Matching him. And then obviously they had an injury, forced Slaughter to play out there. But yeah, I think mostly depth issues and the fact that they were just not willing to throw one of the young guys into the fire. I agree. Um, coming into the portal, it's a big 
couple weeks here for Tennessee. We mentioned Jordan Seaton. That's probably going to come down the pike. They don't get Cam Michael. He ends up at Colorado, but I think it's still win because it doesn't end up at Georgia. Those recruitments are always good because it's like, all right, well, he didn't end up at a rival, and uh, I'd rather him go to the Big 12 uh, than anywhere else because you don't have to face him and this, that, and the other. Um, but when you look at the portal and what's popping up over the next two weeks, who is the most interesting player to watch? For you, Jack, who are you most interested in? Maybe in terms of who's currently on this team that might enter the portal for Tennessee that you're curious about or who uh, out there you're pretty interested in. It may be a good fit for Tennessee to target. Well, if we're talking about players exiting, I mean, what we talked about a little bit before the show or maybe at the very beginning, I can't really remember. But Dylan Sampson, you know, I, I, I was expecting big things from him next year. Small may come back. Uh, I don't know. He, he, does he have one more year? He can come back. Yeah, I, I know believe Small he does, can. yeah. Um, he's also a likable dude. I like uh, yeah. when I listen to Jabari but, Small. I'm like, I like Jabari Small. He's gonna be a coach up there. Like he's a future coach. He's like doing the Jerome Carvin thing. Where Jerome Carvin isn't he like on staff or something? He's just like back. Am I misremembering that? No, he's with. Um, no, I'm pretty. He was a like his picture is Tennessee. I'm telling you, Jerome Carvin is he back? What is Jerome Carvin doing? Because he's not on an NFL roster right now. But anyway, he's. I don't think he is. He got cut from the Chiefs before the season started. Anyway. Just the running back position. Um, you know, Jalen Wright's probably gone, I think. If Small comes back, he's not a game changer. Khalifa Keith, you know, we'll see what happens there. But he feels like, you know, just the big back, the, the bruiser, not really somebody you can lean on to do a whole lot. And then Kem Selden, you know, he's a freak. But mm. I don't know. We saw none of him. And it's, it's, is that going to pan out? You know, he's an interesting player. So the running back spot is something I'm looking at. There's always good names in the portal at running back. And... If Dylan's gone, then you know it becomes a big need. So, um, I mean, if Dylan goes, like I have no idea what it looks like. Yeah, uh, very true. Because I mean, the I plan has to be Dylan's or RB one going into next year, right? There's no way they have like that's the like, that has to be the plan. Wait, what's what's the yeah? Plan? It has to that be the Dylan's RB one yeah, going into next year. Definitely, it has to be the plan. But it's the it's the whole thing with nil now. It's you know mm. where are you willing to spend, and is it worth spending a lot of money on a, a running back? You know, it's a position that. You feel like you can rotate, and certainly Josh Seibel's offense has had a lot of success with a lot of different running backs. And you know, this isn't to say that he just, Tennessee shouldn't want Dylan Thompson back. They definitely should. And if he does come back, I'd expect him to be Tennessee's starter. But I don't think I don't think he's a perfect back. I, especially when you talk about a guy that's going to be your every down back. I think his vision's not all that great, and he misses a lot of holes. And he can make you know something out of nothing at a really high level. But I think there's a lot of plays where he leaves a lot of yards out there. So uh, I would think if he goes, then the intensity to try to get Jabari back would be really important. I still think Tennessee would probably try to add a guy in the portal, um, but I think you would just be in desperate need of someone proven coming back. And Dylan Sampson is kind of almost an antithesis of Dylan Sampson in that way, that he's not going to do a lot of stuff to make your jaw drop and the spectacular, but there's four yards out there. He's going to get four yards, and, and he's not going to leave a lot of yards out there. He's going to do the little things well. He's going to protect the football. He's going to pass block well. So, that'll be an interesting one. And I think this is a whole, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen enough players entering the portal, but always going to be a premium on offensive linemen and any portal class. Tennessee needs them badly. There's not a ton of super quality guys, especially tackle bodies out there. And we just mentioned it too. I think safety will be a really, really important spot. I think those are the two spots you'll probably see Tennessee hit, take multiple guys at. And wide receiver. Yeah. Yeah. See the wide receiver. I don't know. Like Donnie Norton yeah. obviously didn't work this year, but yeah, he looked he better on the edge. Uh, on the perimeter uh, at the end of the year. 
get him back healthy. He seems back because I think he quote tweeted uh, John Campbell and was like, come back because John Campbell made a post yeah. about his last one. So clearly Dante Thornton is planning on being back. That being said, I think it's more internal. Like you saw Jalen Hyatt and Cedric Tillman had the bump. Like guys, I think just take time to develop in this system. I think it's a harder system for receivers to learn and master that I think Dante Thornton, I would bet on him being a lot better in year two. And now, you know, he's only outside guy. Just keep him out there, put him in the Javante Payton role and just that's it. Like, just say that that's fine and move him there. I think it's Brew McCoy to me. Like, I think he's a sneaky, extremely important person to be back. You get year three in the system with Brew. He has an opportunity to have a big year and he's so good at blocking on the edge and he's such a different kind of guy. I just love the idea of Brew on one side, Mike Matthews in the slot and Dante Thornton on the other side. Like if you're able he's to do throwing squirrel wide away, squirrel. <laughs> let me tell you, I was talking to Rusty Mansell. And look, get rid of him. No, I love squirrel. Don't get me wrong. I love squirrel, but Mike Math, you don't sign the best wide receiver in the class really. And Mike Matthews, I mean, Mike Matthews, when I was talking to Rusty Mansell last week of uh, dogs on three, Georgia wanted him. And like, it's not just because my man uh, went to my, uh, my high school. He's a, he's an alumni. He was like, no, Mike Matthews, is a freak and like he's gonna be coming in obviously in the next couple of weeks for bowl prep and he's an early enrollee but mike matthews is gonna find his way to the field and i think my i think most guys want to start off in the slot and they move outside uh once they get more comfortable in the system or they go start out on the outside and move into the slot when they get more comfortable i don't know where mike matthews ultimately starts but based on the conversation i have with rusty it seems like something went very wrong if mike matthews is i get that he's a freshman but if he's not getting a bunch of reps right out of the gate, I think something went wrong. Matthews is too good. That would just be very I'm, not Josh Heupel and just not. Come on the I'm pod, Mel Josh. Piper. We're going to have to have a conversation. Like That's just not happening, I don't think. Frank Caliendo doing Mel Kuyper about <laughs> the, everything Chase Thompson just said about the receiver position. You just sit. Uh, well, hold on. You just Leave Chase Thompson out of it. I'm Chase Thomas. Chase Thomas. <laughs> All right, trying to move past it. I just uh, <laughs> called the host of the show by the wrong name. No, continue. You're off to a great start. Now. I don't know where you're going. Yeah, keep going, Ryan. Well, you just did your whole diatribe about how mm-hmm. the receivers get so much better in, in with multiple years. Jalen Hyde and Cedric Tillman. Yeah, and then you just told me Mike Matthews is going to come in and bump out Tennessee's best receiver this year. As a I didn't say bump out. Freshman. I said they rotate. Like, that's the dream well, is be able to rotate Mike Matthews. Use the word rotate. Let's, let's put that Okay, that's fine. Oh, we do not use Mike, the word rotate. You said slide in Mike Matthews to the, to the slot position, and that's the only place Squirrel White's playing on the football. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Mike Matthews is going to play. I just think a lot of people who are expecting, like, Hypo's going to have to evolve. Mike is going to have to play, and I think he's going to have to play a lot. Where, and then, I guess with the other stuff, in the sense that Tennessee does, I don't think Tennessee needs to add a bunch of numbers or bodies to the receiver room. I think that's the opposite of the case. But they, they're, to me, missing number one pretty badly and hmm. is that plausible for Dante Thornton I think yes I think he has that talent it's you've mentioned it the jumps that guys have made in this offense I don't think you can say it's impossible I think Nimrod popped down the stretch by the way is there a Cedric Tillman year three bump for Nimrod I don't particularly think so maybe he proved wrong but my to go back hmm. my point this this offense desperately needs a number one receiver yeah. and I don't you know, maybe it's Thornton, but I don't really. Com- I'm not really confident saying they have any anybody else on the roster. So, if there is a big name guy or there's a guy out there that 
Tennessee thinks can be that, I think they should go extremely, extremely hard at him and, and commit to getting him. And as much as I think Brew McCoy is a, a really solid player and he's a good player, like I don't think his ceiling is number one receiver level good. I think he's, yeah. you know, a good number three, you know, a solid number two. And, and I think we've had this conversation a couple weeks ago. Squirrel White just, you know, I like him a lot, but he's not going to be a guy that's going to go out there and, I think have a 13-yard season and be your go-to guy on third downs and stuff like that. So I think there's a glaring need for a number one, um, and maybe they gamble on thinking it's Dante Thornton, but uh, that's certainly a position I would be monitoring and trying to to go hard at if you some big-name guy does pop up and enters the portal. Final thing here, Jack. The most important senior that if you're Josh Heupel, you work to talk uh, back into one more year at Tennessee, who is it for you? Um. Sprags and Mays. Okay. So that, I would agree, oh, probably. And it feels like, you know, Mays, the whole report of him not doing it, it's a little more publicized that he was not going through senior day. Mm-hmm. The Sprags ones, you know, obviously not a lot there, but those two guys. If you only get one, who do you take? Is it Mays? If you only can have one back. It's got to be Mays. Yeah, I'd say so. What about you, Ryan? Is it, are those your two most get, important ones to come back to talk into coming back? As well, uh, and really, it's everybody on the offensive line. Yeah, um, but I think those are the two best offensive linemen. Um, so uh, I'll say them. And I mean, it's just for the reasons that we talked about earlier in this podcast of how bad Tennessee's depth is at offensive line and how bleak things look after after the starters or maybe the first seven or eight guys. And if Cooper Mays is gone, who's starting? Who's starting at center? Because I got no confidence in Lang, anybody I guess, currently right? on. I got. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in anybody that's currently on Tennessee's roster. So maybe you go out and find somebody in the portal. Maybe a young guy like Vice and Lang does take a big step. But to your point, Chase, Vice and Lang, Tennessee was down three offensive starters yesterday, offensive line starters yesterday. They were winning by 30 points for a large part in the second half, and he did play. So that's not exactly a ringing endorsement of where he's currently at in his development. You could sell me on it being Amari Thomas. They need the body. They don't have don't... any depth at defensive tackle right now. I mean, maybe what Tyree Rathersby looks like uh, going into next year, because losing him early really sucked for them. But Armour Norman Lott, like you could, I, I think that's kind of like terrifying if they lose Lott and Thomas uh, this cycle, because there is not yeah. like Bryson Eason's back. But I mean, Elijah Simmons, I think, can come back. Devin Hobbs should be a starter next year. He's popped. Um, but. They just don't have a lot of bodies at DT. Like Terry leaving this past cycle hurt their bodies. Karak Garland, I think, is gone. I don't know. Like, they're really thin there. And, I mean, Omari's a leader on that side of the ball. That kind of worries me. I would say Omari Thomas is a sneaky, important one to get back for one more year to bridge the the depth gap. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those two guys. You need one of those two guys back. I mean, you probably vote Omari because he's been more consistent and he is a leader. But, yeah. If they get one of Omar Norman Lott and Amari Thomas back, I'm not like overly concerned about it. There's pressure the, on those the guys one that to pops up that I'd be like, yeah, it's Keenan Peely. Like if you get Keenan Peely back for year 19 of his college career, because I think the man's like 27, um, that's a win. Because then if you you feel good about the linebacker room, right? Like if you have Peely back and then you have T Lander, Spillman, yeah. <laughs> Carter, and Elijah back, where uh, I'm not going to do this. Elijah is like your fifth most important Baker. linebacker. You're in a much better spot. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that earlier when we were talking about T Lander. It's just, you know, he looks good. Is it him and Carter? I guess it's him and Carter next year. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would say with him and Carter, like those are two dudes. And again, this is like somewhere that young guys typically develop a lot. Two dudes that haven't necessarily looked great in pass coverage. But as I'm saying this and I'm thinking it through, literally none of Tennessee's returning linebackers. <laughs> I was going to say, big, beggars can't big be choosers here. Mark on all their <laughs> games. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Side, I guess. Ryan Shempert, what can the good folks check out from you and the team over at Rocky Top Insider this week? Oh, all the all the normal good stuff. Kicking off the the off season, we'll have we'll be monitoring the transfer portal from both names that make sense for Tennessee and, and Tennessee guys entering it. Any sort of decisions um, we get this week on players deciding to come back or go, any coaching decisions, any recruiting, all the stuff in the off season. And uh, Rick and I will be in Chapel Hill this week for Tennessee's basketball as they look to to get back uh, on the right track after losing two straight to the Invitational. Can't lose too many more games. You don't win the title with double-digit losses uh, heading into the NCAA tournament. So they've given up two early. I'm glad that you you're changing the bar to ten because it was last year you were giving up on them. I think it's set was it's eight. I think, I think, it, I think eight it before said eight or NCAA nine tournament. Yeah, yeah. But you did have a stat to back it up. Uh, that's I what I'm saying. Like people don't realize this. I'm like, no, Tennessee's out. Like if you get to gobble up a couple to the SEC to some good SEC teams like Kentucky or whoever, like. Lose a good bit this year because just the schedule is so oh. difficult. I'm out. Baseball season yeah, is gonna, here. Go baseballs. Chase is going to be out before, not before New Year, but before I think before baseball season starts, Chase will be out on the Tennessee basketball team. That's my prediction. Oh yeah, I'm I'm already inching closer and closer to there. Uh, I'm already like there's me like uh, Wednesday night like man, Ledlam would have really really helped if you had a, that that one last body. I'm just yeah no, I'm I'm not there. Uh, Jack Foster, what about you and the team over at Always College Football and everywhere else uh, on the internet for you this week? Yeah, just uh, the typical. Um, we got I guess one of the last big weeks for a while. You know, the last big week for a while. Seeing how everything shakes out with conference championship. Um, weekends and all the different scenarios will be discussed this week on the shows. We got three more shows this week after today's show, so four total. But yeah, everything's coming down to the wire. And uh, Greg will be on Tuesday night's reaction show, like always, for the rankings. There you go. Jack, Ryan, thank you as always, and I'll talk to y'all next week. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 